Another first on the channel. John here has done 27 years with Scotland Yard. The uh, eminent, what was he said? <laughs> benchmark of policing. The benchmark Global of policing. Benchmark of policing. Global benchmark of yeah. policing. Scotland Yard. So we're going to get in, get in deep from the other side. We've had a lot of people on here who have committed crimes or been involved in crimes, a few journalists. So this is the first. I'm really delighted to get more from the other side. So thanks for coming down. Oh, it's a pleasure, Sean. London, John. Yeah. What made you want to join Scotland Yard or become a police? Uh, well, it was it was a strange one. I actually um, didn't want to be a police officer, to be honest. And uh, I had a passion for swimming and diving. And the, the police had a diving unit. The Metropolitan Police had a diving unit. So I actually joined and I said at my interview that I wanted to be a diver for them. And uh, they took me on, you know, uh, but it sort of changed. So once I got a taste of investigating, I never, uh, I did get um, put on the, the river unit, which had the diving unit there in the East End of London uh, for a couple of years. But then I got seconded off and ended up dealing what with What years were they? Uh, I joined at the beginning of the 90s. So it was uh, the beginning of the, the, the millennium, really 2000. I ended up on the... Uh, on the river unit, and you're assigned to do what? As a you know, dive obviously, but what what kind well, of well, work? well, initially uh, I, I got put on there. It, it's it's strange how it happened because at the same time in 2000, um, my ex missus left me with four children on my own to bring up, and I needed a job where I could get home for my kids, and they worked a really good shift pattern. They worked four days on, four days off, so I and it's a really sought after job. Um, so I applied. I was uh, a detective, a trainee detective up the West End of London at the time, and this job come up, and it was a bit of a welcome break. Uh, but I was uh, sort of just learning the ropes on driving a boat. I got on my boat driving like I've got a ferryman's license. I can actually drive a ferry if I want to. <laughs> and um, within a couple of months, I was getting very bored, and we had a uh, an intelligence. It's really strange how it works because... That little um, police station in uh, Wapping in the east end of London is the oldest police station in the world. 1798 it began. Hmm. And it's quite weird because you, you hear things um, and people get classed as conspiracy theorists. And one of them, they go on about maritime law and how that it underpins all our laws. And it's really weird that um, maritime law actually is the basis of all law. And that's why you stand in the dock. And if a boat sinks, it's in trouble. It needs to be bailed out. So we get bailed out. That's where it comes from, bail. It, that's where it all comes from, yeah. So um, they they had a uh, special branch were based there because it was classed as a port. And they uh, they were really good to work with because they um, had access to phenomenal information. And they were like the crossover with MI5 and things like that then. And once you got in with them boys, you, you know, you could really glean some good info. Uh, and, well, as a diver, though. Did you like discover anything? Well, well I never went diving. Okay. I, I never went diving because I just didn't want to. And <laughs> and you wouldn't see anything anyway. It's just murky, black water. You just end up diving the Regent's Canal in Camden for prostitutes. That's all they ended up oh, sort of. Uh, but um, th they had an intelligence unit there and there was a detective sergeant there. And it's, every now and then you get people you work with that, that really boost you. They really got that energy. And, and he was a fantastic guy, a little tough guy, a little tough gingerhead guy. And he said, look, what are you doing now? I said, look, I'll, I'll get home for my kids and, you know, and everything. He said, look, there's a problem. There's a problem on the river and the canals. 
come and come and work with me. Come and help me out, and I'll get you seconded. He said, we're getting funding from the paedophile unit. And it was to do with sex offenders living on canal boats because there was a loophole in the law which allowed them, when they brought in the Sex Offenders Registry Act in 1997, when I do a presentation, I get this board out and I draw the map of London with the Thames and all that, and there is a loophole. And what it says is that you used to have to sign the Sex Offenders Register within 28 days of conviction, uh, caution, or or serving of a sentence for a sex offence against a child, a Schedule 1 sex offence. You had 28 days to go to a police station in the policing district where you resided and sign on as a sex offender. And a lot of them didn't want to do that for obvious reasons. Now, there was a copper in Peterborough in Cambridgeshire. He sort of made an issue of this because they had a lot of transient paedophiles in Peterborough and in Cambridgeshire in general. So I went to see him and I said, well, what's going on with it? And he went, oh, it's because they don't have to register. If they keep moving from county to county... So if they move from Lincolnshire for a couple of days, then come back, in effect, they don't have to register. Mm. And he said, look at London. He said, and at the time, I, I was studying geographical profiling. Everything goes to a pattern, absolutely everything. And human beings all go to a pattern. And geography answers a lot, you know, and um, also how empires are built. If you look at why the British Empire was so good, because we had geography on our side, whereas other places don't, we, you know, so... Uh, London is built up of, I think it's 26 boroughs. And each borough in London, London's unique in as much as it's not one policing district, it's 26 policing districts. And when you look at the canals, they're so old, the boundaries, the old parish boundaries are built up around the canals and the River Thames. So if you take sort of like where Wapping is, that's in the borough of Tower Hamlets. But if you go into the middle of the river, you're then in the borough of Southwark. So... River Thames is tidal and moves about too fast, but the canals don't, and canal boats are all right to live in. So certain parts of London, there was um, a collection of paedophiles, so you'd get them around Hackney, uh, Southall. And when I overlaid a map on top of it, I found out that these were areas where three boroughs were meeting. So the canal boat, in effect, could be here, and then literally a canal is only three metres wide, some of them. You cross over on your, your 27th day onto the other side, you're in another borough, and legally, you're not going to get caught. This is blowing my mind. I can't believe what I'm hearing. So I started looking into this. And see, my reason why I do what I do now, I'm a whistleblower in as much as I blew the whistle on the cover-up of, of child prostitution, child abuse in general. And I was threatened and bullied to a monumental degree, threatened with imprisonment on nine occasions if I didn't shut my mouth. And it all came from this... Uh, unit i was on so how many years after you'd entered the police were you on this unit how long did that take uh i i i started off on the street then i quickly went into the cid because that's where i wanted to go i didn't like uniform policing i just found them like drones dealing with the same rubbish um all day long i was never excited in fast cars or anything like that and the detectives had a lot of freedom i'm a bit of a loner i love working on my own or in a small group i don't like big crowds and I am responsible for my own merits and my own hard work. And so I really liked detective work and I loved it. And how, how many um, years had you been in the I've been, you I've, been I've been in uh, about seven years. All right, so you've then... jumped ahead quite a bit. Let's just go back a second. Um, you went from diving to the street? No, I start, No, I, ne I never actually got diving. I joined to become a diver, but I had to become a copper first okay. and specialise. So I started off in South East London. Yeah. 
and I moved from South East London into the West End of London. And what were your um, initial duties? Um, just patrolling, really. If you're on a car or on foot, I went to a rough part of South East London, and it was exciting. It was violent. Uh, it wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, what did you think it would be? Uh, I thought it'd be a lot more organised than what it was. It was just chaos, really. It was um, just going from one court to the other, and uh, and it was very violent as well. So did you get attacked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've been attacked. I've had my ribs broken. Um, and what was uh, the circumstances that your ribs got broken? Oh well, well, it's uh, a laugh about it now. But um, my stepfather was a tough guy, and he was a big hard man. But he was a lovely, lovely guy, and. I didn't want to tell him that I joined the police because um, he didn't really like the police. And we were in a pub one day and I said, look, I'm, uh, I've joined the police. And he'd already found out, I think, from one of my sisters. And I said, I was frightened to tell you because I, I thought you might, you know, be against it. And we're in a pub and he's got a pint in his right hand. And I said to him, I'm a bit worried because he, he was six foot seven and he was huge, big, strong lad. And he liked, he was always fighting. And he turned around to me, he said, look, what are you worried about? I said, what if I got nicked someone like you? I said, you, 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 you're just massive, you kill me. And I was very lean back then, a very lean and, and quiet lad, you know. And the next thing, he's taken the pint from his right hand, put it into his left hand. He said, listen, son, it's not what I'm going to do, it's what I'm not going to do. And I think, what does that even mean? And with that, he's chinned me. He smacked me right on the chin and knocked me flying. <laughs> because I'm a dopey idiot, I had my tongue out and I bit my tongue, nearly bit my tongue off blood everywhere and he picked me up he said oh my god whatever you do don't tell your sisters and your mum I've done that <laughs> I said why'd you do that he said listen he said I love your bits he said when you go out there those that mouth off and they're going to tell you they're going to do this they're going to do that get straight in there and grab hold of them because they're not going to do it but the quiet one will hurt you and will hurt you bad and it was when I was uh, very new to the streets we stopped a taxi um, in South London South East London and the guy I was with, he was an oracle, knew everyone on the street. And he said, look, I'll talk to this guy. You talk to that guy. I think he's wanted. And he was wanted. And he was over the side from prison. He'd so this is someone that's a passenger in a taxi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They used to use, a lot of the burglars would use taxis back then. And he'd, uh, he'd done a runner from whatever Nick. And he was a junkie and he didn't want to be caught. And I went over to him and said, what's your name? And he gave me a name, give me a false name. And he said, listen, son, he said, it's easy enough. He said, a bit difficult to spell. Get your book out and I'll, and I'll spell it out for you. I said, okay. So because so I'm, I'm looking down there. And he said, get on your radio. You can check me out. I was known for a few things, but I'm not known anymore. And because as soon as I've gone like that, he's, he's headbutted me. And of course, I've gone down, but I grabbed his leg and, and I wouldn't give up. And it, it was like a school fight. And it was, and he, my mate started fighting with his mate. So we're all fighting. My radio's gone miles, so we can't call for help. And anyway, um, well, we were just clumping each other and it was rolling around the floor. But in the end, he gave up and he said, right, enough. He said, I've had enough. I'm, I'm wanted. I went, all right. And, he, and I'd had all blood where to hit me all down my white shirt because it was in the summer. And we sat down and I said, uh, do you want a cigarette? He went, oh, would you, son? Roll us. A, they called him a salmon back then, and they roll us a salmon, salmon and trout, snouts. So I rolled him a little fag and gave him a fag, and uh, he shook my hand. And he said, do you know? I went, yeah. He said, well, don't let him ever change you. Don't let him ever change you, son. <laughs> but th 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 there's a flip side of that, that um, when I w went back to the station, um, it was obvious that I'd been assaulted, and uh, 
the next thing I know, he, he was, I was told to go and have a shower. When I come back, there was an ambulance and he was carted off. Apparently, he had uh, tripped and had an accident in the cell. So, you know, and so that's what went on. Nothing to do with me because I was having a shower. But anyway, so that was, um, uh, but another time, um, someone did try and kill me, try and stab me. Mm. And this ties in a bit with um, what you were saying. I, I was on Vice and I loved it. It was all street work and it was good. I was in King's Cross and back then was a frontline King's Cross. And there was a lot of street prostitution, hell of a lot of drugs, a lot of violence. And a lad I was working with was dealing with um, a prostitute in an alleyway, just getting the details and everything else. And a pimp came out of nowhere. And as he's come up, he's walked towards the copper because he was all in civilian clothes. And I've seen him and it was something out of a film. I see this glint from the light and he's got a blade. I think, you're flipping hell. So I run up to him and he's pulled the blade on me. So... um I punched him. Anyway, he's sort of gone back, jumped on him, and we're rolling around. Again, we're having a fight on the street. And um, I got my ribs broken. He broke my ribs and uh, all down one side. And uh, I managed to get him down. And then someone else came along, got him handcuffed. And I sat him down. And he was from New York. And I said, look, are you all right? You're cool. And he went, yeah, yeah. I said, are we, we all right now? He went, yeah. So I said, listen, he was handcuffed at the back. I said, push your handcuffs under your feet and bring them up to your front. And my mate's going, what are you doing? I went, no, it's all right. Let him do it. I said, I'm going to roll you a cigarette. So he went, okay. So I rolled him a cigarette. I gave him a cigarette. And he said, I want to tell you a story. He said, I'm from Brooklyn. He said, I was a pimp in Brooklyn. And he said, I, um, I ran girls out in Brooklyn. And one night, the vice cops out there, same scenario. And he said, I went to stab one. He said, they shot me and I got nine years in Rikers Island Police Station. He said, I'd do it to you, Bobbies. He said, you fight like a man and you give me a cigarette. He said, you're a class act, son. (laughs) (laughs) He said, whatever you say I've done, I've done. But no, I started off um, in South East London and then I, I I got moved. There is a reason I got moved from yard protection. Someone actually tried to kill me. And I got sent to the West End. Someone tried to kill What was that over? Tried to kill me. Uh, That was over the fact that um, my ex-missus husband was in uh, prison. I met her from that area. I was in prison um, for attempted murder and got released and decided to come and shoot me. So, anyway. Was that a credible thing then? uh, Yeah, it, it was deemed a credible threat. So they moved me to uh, the West End. They they was deliberating whether or not to sack me. So they moved me to the West End to sort of um, give me another chance, you know. So I went to the West End and I went to a police station, which was, I went to Belgravia and it was classed as a very quiet police station. But what I didn't realise was that it was totally under surveillance and the the back of the building, there was flats there and they were all occupied by the corruption police and they were viewing everyone that came in it was the only police station back there that had swipe card access. Um, so everyone that came in was monitored and all the phones monitored and all the detectives, well, not all of them, that's a bit unfair, but all the, the senior experienced detectives had been moved from the flying squad and the regional crime squad because of corruption. And they were all put into one pot and they were monitoring them. And of course they carried on their old ways and they all got... Um, loads of them got arrested when you say corruption what methods of corruption were they employing 
there was um, a lot of money being stolen from informants. Back then, the police would get paid money and they'd give it to informants. So, and what they were doing were, were keeping half, giving half, keeping half. Uh, so would that encourage police to like cultivate informants just, just to get that money? Yeah, well, because it was a money owner, you know. Um, I heard of one guy that actually managed to pay for sales for his yacht from money that they'd stolen. There was, I mean, and the DI, this is how crazy it was back then. The DI, he's mentioned in a lot of books, this fella, and uh, on police corruption. And I won't name him because this never came out, but it was common knowledge back then. Uh, what do you mean by DI? Detective Inspector. Okay. Right. He was a great big strong guy and he would deal with everything, what he knew, which was violence. He'd come from the regional crime squad, the flying squad before that. And uh, there was one of the detective sergeants, the DSs there, um, had screwed up on a job. And everyone had gone out for an office lunch. They used to go out um, to the East End for a curry. And his way of dealing with his problem was that he took the DS outside of the restaurant, punched him. Punched him so hard in the face, he splintered the guy's cheekbone. The bone went into his eye and uh, and blinded him. And he fell on the floor and he walked back in and said, no one's to pick him up. He stays there like the piece of shit he is. And the, the, the bloke ended up having to be pensioned out the police for it. But nothing was ever said. Uh, you know, and this is what happened. But loads of there, there was money being stolen from fellas that were in the drug squad and it was mainly stealing the money there was you know um, I imagine the temptation if a drug dealer's got a lot of money there would be easy targets to take the money because you know who are they uh, going to complain to yeah I mean and it was part of the culture I mean what you're looking at back then when I joined a lot of them their, their training had come from the late 60s and the 70s and it was absolutely endemic that's how they did it and uh, what I was told one of the reasons why the Sweeney the program, the Sweeney, was taken off air was political pressure because too many coppers were copying them, you know. I mean, what one guy, um, on a Friday, we did the warrants. So in the CID on a Friday, someone's turn, you go and get the warrant, we kick a door in, get in there six o'clock, have an early day in the pub. Big drinking culture as well. Um, one of the, um, the, the sergeants there, his thing was he, he went in first and if there was a man in there, he'd just go up and he'd headbutt him. You know, and it was, it was. So, I mean, it never go on now because of cameras and everything else. But back then, it it did go on. So, say like six police were assigned to raid like a drug dealer's place, and ten thousand pounds was found in there. How would that be distributed? Do you know, th th this is quite funny because this is the, um, you know, and in no way am I saying I've had anything to do with this. You know? <laughs> but there'd be the same when, when you'd be booking property in. You go, you go with your colleague up to the custody desk with the with the property, and they said, "Right, well, how much money?" And you say ten thousand pounds, for example, ten thousand. The side would go eight thousand. Are you going to book six thousand in? We haven't got room for four thousand, so we'll book your two thousand in, and, uh, and then that's at least a <laughs> all the time. But um, so this wasn't just isolated few police corrupt police robbing drug dealers. This was part systematic. Uh, yeah, it, it was. I mean, I think. It changed. The nineties really changed it. Paul Condon came in, and he, and he he had a real pole shift on corruption. Unfortunately, he swept over, and there were some good coppers that were classed as corrupt that weren't corrupt. And there was one guy, and he was a fantastic copper, and he was someone I really really looked up to. And they tried to tar him with that brush, and he wouldn't have it. And 
because he wouldn't play ball. They, they, the, the corruption police stitched him up. And again, the corruption police, this is a problem I had. Those, There's just been this line of duty program on and it angers me because they're the ones that tried to stitch me up and they did try and stitch me up and I'm taking them to court next next year um, because of what they tried to do to me. And if you, with me, it was, I reckon it was it was virgin on the political because of what I was exposing. Should we build up to that? Then? Yeah, of course, of course. So, so what happened, if I go through the chronology of it, I mean, I joined... Uh, in the 90s, didn't have the best of starts, but enjoyed it. Uh, again, it was rough and ready. And and it was a bit of both. Sometimes um, the people you're dealing with, they expected a roll around. So it was who could get it in first. And and you'd actually go in the pub and the lot you, you dealt with, like maybe a couple of days before, be in the pub and they'd pass a drink over. <laughs> and they'd say, next time we'll have you. And that's, <laughs> and that's, and I can always remember once I was, I was out um, in the East End with my kids and I used to take them to a pub that was on the River Thames there. And I, I, my kids were only little, and this car's come steaming past with four four up, as we'd say, and it's big handbrake skid spun round, and pulled up beside me, and I've, all I've heard is it's Wedger, get him. So two of them had jumped out, and I said, "Boys, I'm, I'm with with my kids," and they're like, "Sorry, sorry about that, sorry about that." And one of them gave my kids a pound each, <laughs> but they were going to fill me in because they thought I was on my own. I went, I went, no, 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 no. He's with his kids enough, you know. It's tribal. Yeah, and it was um so there there was this agreement, but my career went to a path where I was used because I had a good nature with people, I was used and I don't think it's a sneaky thing to do. I was used to get information. And people what we was discussing off camera, what you got, what people got to understand is you get this criminal fraternity, we don't talk to the police. Total absolute hundred percent nonsense. And I'm not denigrating ex-cons at all because I do a lot of work with Chris Lambriano and I've got the utmost respect for Chris, you know, ex-Cray Twins henchman and all this sort of blah blah But as a guy, a fantastic guy and and, and an upstanding guy and there's a couple of others in, in uh, the sort of group that he's involved that I've been introduced to which are lovely, lovely people. But the criminal fraternity grass on each other and they do and it's an unwritten rule and they all grass. Not all of them. Well, you, you get what I'm saying with this. I had, over, I had over 100 co-defendants and only four cooperated. Yeah. So it was not always like... Not always, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and there's inducements they can get, you know, certain things they can get, but it is a big department in the police information. And people think that the old Bill or the old CNI, they're not the old CNI. The only reason the old Bill know about something because someone's grasped them up. They say there are more informants in America now than there are police. Yeah, probably right. 100% right. You know, um, so I I ended up at the West End and then I ended up in the CID, but I ended up in this. All right. So what year are you now going into the CID? I'm, I'm going into the CID about 90, about, I think it's about 95 to 96. So I've many years into, into your career, are you? Uh, a couple of years into it. Yeah. And I, I go into CID very early. I got offered a driving course, but my inspector said, you bet your career's better off in the CID. If you have a driving course, uniform one you're going to be obliged to the uniform teams and I didn't like the shift pattern I didn't like getting up early and I just didn't like being part of a team and I wanted to be in the CID so he said turn it down and you'll get on on the crime squad so I turned it down and they put me on a crime squad um so I went into the CID department but I was amongst all these um more senior and experienced detectives who were all under investigation I never knew at the time you know, 90% of them were being investigated for very, very serious crimes. Um, so 
what they were meant to do was if you, you manage your crimes, your crimes get allocated to you and you usually get five or six crimes. I mean, now they, they have a lot more because they've got less coppers, but you go up to about 10 is about average. But all these old boys screened all their crimes into me and my mate. We had 100 crimes each. You know, they just screened everything into our... And have you got like a deadline on these uh, crimes? Well, you know, they're meant to be sort of um, looked into daily and they're meant to be updated every month and people want their crimes investigated. And how but, serious are these crimes? Well, one of them turned out to be an attempted murder, you know, and it initially didn't come in as it, and it, it ended up going up to an attempted murder. Um, Did you solve that one? No. <laughs> It did get solved, but uh, me and my power didn't, unfortunately. But um, from there, then I ended up we're moving now towards the 2000s. I, I, you know, I had a good time. I enjoyed it, and, and I, I really did like it. Um, but I had a young family, and I had an ex-missus who had a lot of problems, uh, a lot of self-induced problems, you know, and uh, she just ran off one day, leaving uh, me with one infant child, one toddler, and, and two older kids. And uh, so then... This job come up, and uh, I took that, and then I started looking into the the paedophiles. And what happened was that the the paedophile unit had got information from a prison again. Had got information from the prison that uh, in order to get away with being released and not becoming a re- you know um, a registered sex offender, uh, what you got to do is you have got to get a canal boat, and if you get one in London, they ain't going to touch you. And from the reasons I've explained, but also the canals are on the edge of nowhere, you know, and kids like boats. Mm. And what do they do with special needs respite? They take them on boat trips. Mm. I mean, we had one one of our paedophiles that we was watching. He'd got himself on a boat that would take kids kids um, oh. day outs from Camden to the, to the zoo, and he was put in charge of toilet duties. Mm. I mean, you, you couldn't make it up. Um, so what what the paedophile unit said to me, look, we're, we're going to get you seconded to us, right? We're going to sponsor you. Uh, we've got two sex offenders. We think there's probably another couple. If you can find another couple in the next couple of months, brilliant. We'll keep this going and, and it will then come under the national, um, was it, was it, it wasn't the National Crime Squad. It was the uh, National... Intelligence, oh, so it'll come to me in a minute. Anyway, it's, it's a big collective intel, uh, police and intelligence thing. Anyway, in the first month, I found 90, 90. 90? 90, yeah. What was your technique to get that many? Well, it, it was quite easy, to be honest. Um, what what we found was that it was an alternative community back then. Now it's trendy to live on a boat and with house prices. British waterways are the, the biggest landowner in the country. And what they call riparian, if any land is on a water, you get 30% more more back on it than if it's landlocked. So anything river-based or canal-based gets good money. Um, so they had governance, right? They were really good. They gave me a lot of help. And they had a phenomenal database. So I had access to their database. But there's no duty for anyone to register a boat in their name. So there's people registering in the name of Donald Duck and all this. And they all hated the old bill because they like to smoke a bit of cannabis. So instantly they hate the old bill. And you've got quite a few of these sort of pseudo middle classy lot living on there. And they, they, you're the Babylon and all this nonsense. So what, what I did was I used to get, the, they had these, excuse the term, but they had these cruising clubs. And they were like these little um, hubs, uh, like little scout huts along the canal where all the boaties could meet and have a little social club. So I'd hold little talks in there 
on crime prevention. And the angle I did it was say, has anyone had, and the main problems they had were people throwing stones at boats and nicking their bikes. So I said, look, if you've got problems with the kids, you throwing stones, I can get a few of the lads there and we can stop them doing that, chucking the stones from the tall flats and everything else. And also we'll start up a bike marking scheme. I had absolutely no interest in all that stuff anyway, but what it did was it got them on board. And I said, I'm not bothered about your cannabis. I really couldn't care less, you know, and all that. And people start kind of bored. So I said, in order to do it, let's have a collective database. Give us your names and address, your names and dates of births. We'll put you all on there and we can have a little feedback. And I did a couple of proactive operations with kids lobbing stones just to placate them. But my reason for doing it was I got their names and their names and dates of birth. And that's how I found out they were paedophiles. And it was just incredible. And then I started cultivating informants. And so when you get the name and date of birth, you put that in your computer and yeah. that shows they're registered. Yeah, it was coming up. Gotcha. You know, and it was amazing how many of them were helping out special needs kids, oh. kids from kids' homes. And anyway, it was incredible. So I started then giving presentations on a national level to the walkways agencies and also to other intelligence agencies. And one thing I didn't realise um, because I was naive was how many intelligence agencies there are. You've got um, the NHS have got an intelligence agency. You've got one for the post office have got one. The aviation authorities have got one. And they're all monitoring. You know, they all had databases which they share, you know. And so it was incredible share of information. So they said, right, we want you to carry on doing this. Well, what happened then was that... Um, names started cropping up of certain people and these are names that have come out on the pie list which has come out the paedophile information exchange and uh, they were involved in boats mainly around the richmond area and 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 they've come out uh, just sort of subsequently in the press um uh, uh, i think linked to people like peter Heyman and and things like this the, these names started cropping up and that was it it got shut down and I came into work one day and my chief inspector said, uh, ever so sorry, but your, your secondment's finished. I went, well, well no, it hasn't. I've been promised that I'm here. And I built my life around it, my schedule around it and, you know, and everything. And he said, uh, no, no, it's come to an end. And I said, oh, come on, be fair. And he went, look, it's come from my up, John. It's come from my up. There's nothing I or anyone can do about it. We're grateful. We can never thank you enough for what you've done. But unfortunately, these things happen, right? Now, the strange thing is there was a very, um, when I say senior, senior inexperienced detective from the paedophile unit that was working with me. And he said, John, this happens all the time. And he said, we've had, and said the name of an MP, we've had him twice, this MP, prominent Tory MP. Are you allowed to say that name? Uh, well, he is dead. Um Oh, well, his initials are LB. I'll leave it at that. Anyway, so twice that you know that they had him, and on both occasions the plug was pulled. And he said it will happen again, and it will happen to you. And sure enough, it did happen to me. So this was the first time I realised a so-called conspiracy exists, and it comes from high up all the time. It comes from high up. But I was doing good work for the first time. I was really believing in what I was doing, and. I can always remember a few years before I was in the custody suite in Woolwich Police Station and there was a lot of heroin and crack cocaine about in the early 90s in London. It was really pretty much bringing London to its knees back then. 
And what I used to do, if I was ever on jailer duties, I used to always take people out for a fag. And I'd always get my cup of tea. I was always good to people, you know. And I remember one guy, he was a little bit older than me, and he was banging trouble with heroin. And I said, tell me about it. What's it all about? And he said to me, mate, he said, if you'd have had my life, you'd be on it. I went, well, what's gone so badly wrong you're on it? And he went, I was in a care home and I was raped and I can't cope with it. And this is what I've done. I've done this and I've done that. Now I'm on the heroin and it's a vicious cycle. And it was at that point, it, it, it was a poignant time in my career. And I thought, there's something in this, you know. And then when I started doing this work, I realised, my God, what's going on? Then I realised the cover-up started happening. And I, I wanted to carry on working with the children because for, for the first time I realised I'm actually going to make a difference. The other stuff, you're just chasing the tail. And it's like um, an author said to me, an ex-copper who's written a book, and he said, all the old Bill ever do is pick low-hanging fruit. And I think, yeah, they're damn right. And it's only as we'll go on, as I'll explain how how this happens. So I said to my boss, I can't, I can't work here no more. I'm off. He said, well, and I was promised any job I wanted said, any job you wanted, you'll have it. I know you've got, you know, your domestic issue and all that. Um, and I said, I want to carry on working with the kids. And a job had come up at that point on the vice unit. And it was quite difficult to get in. And it was then it was classed as an elite team. This is where you get the Scotland Yard squads all come out, the specialist operations, and they all come out of Scotland Yard. So, but we was based at Charing Cross and I got it. And I went along for the, uh, for the interview, did well and got the job. And I initially started off working with the street prostitutes. So they dealt with gaming, prostitution, nightclubs, guns in nightclubs, and and porn images, indecent images, you know, magazines and videos and all that sort of stuff. So I, I started working on the street with the prostitutes. And again, it was just number crunching. They used to have competitions, how many prostitutes they could nick in a night. And these were girls that had all... Everyone had come from the care home. Every one of them was a heroin addict and the rest, you know? They'd been abused. Every single one of them. So um, I I started talking to them. And one of them, she turned around to me and she said, why are you always doing this to us? And she said, "It's why aren't you dealing with the people who've actually done this? So I said, well, if you help me, I'll, I'll, I'll help you. So um, she started giving me information and I started working with her. What kind of information? Um, about her life to start with. So she explained her life, but also how it was run on the street and how the kids are brought into it as well. And one night we was out and there was a girl, a little girl on the street. Now, it was it was called the Street Offences and Juvenile Protection because the Victorians back then, they wouldn't allow children in brothels. They had quite staunch laws around vice and they were way ahead of their time and, and the, the offences were quite quite stern as well um so we were sent out to to look at the street prostitutes which is a street offense of loitering curb crawling and all that rarely did you deal with the curb crawlers it did happen but on the whole you just really hassled the street girls because it was easy pickings but there were kids would turn up on the street young girls mainly what age are you talking about well at this time about 14 but we'll move on in a minute and it gets a hell of a lot younger and one day was out and there was a there was a little girl there and I was told by this other woman that there were a couple of young girls at work in the area and because she was on heroin as well, she looked a hell of a lot younger. And I, I I got her, but we would deal with them as victims. 
and I was told, and this this is part of my statement to get rid of her because she had scabies that she would contaminate the car and then you'd have to take them back to the police station and put them in a certain room. That would need cleaning as well because she's got scabies. She's a pain in the arse. She'll only be doing it tomorrow. Tell her to F off. So the 14-year-old girl. Now, what you're looking at, anyone who has sex, you've only got to watch her. If anyone has sex with her, you're talking rape there, you know, because you can't consent at that age. You've got someone, you know, they weren't interested, but you you couldn't allow a kid to be put in that position anyway. And it, it really shook me. And I thought, my God, what, what, what's going on? And um, they'd all come from the care homes as well, the kids. And again, I'm going to bolster this up shortly. I will always quantify what I say. Um, and I started looking into this and started recruiting some of the girls as informants strictly for the child prostitution side of it. Um, but then I was moved overnight. And I was moved and I was put onto the casino unit, which uh, I'll, I'll go on about that at the end because I lose my thread here. But that was incredibly interesting, you know, and phenomenal. And that got me involved in organised crime. And that nearly got me killed. There was a bounty of 40,000 put on my head because of that. Um, uh, the Turkish mafia don't like me, you know. So uh, anyway, I'll explain that later. But um, what happened then, I was asked to go back to Vice and because a little girl has come forward, a 14-year-old girl was saying that she's been working as a prostitute and that one of the street prostitutes had been pimping her out, which is what happens. Sometimes, you know, the poachers turn gamekeepers and the other way around, you know. So some actually have been through it themselves and will protect the kids. Others, they're, they're so in deep and they'll make money out of the kids so they end up pimping other kids and their kids. And, you know, so this one prostitute was pimping out young girls. Uh, this girl had made allegations in the past but hadn't been believed. They classed her as a liar. Now, we're seeing that in these trials that are coming out in the media at the moment with Cole Beach. We had Esther Baker before that. They're liars. Now, these kids that have been in care homes have had a shitty life to start with. And when they came forward and speak out, they'd just be classed as a liar. So they'd put it on their record. And with the new legislation they brought in in 2003, the Criminal Justice Act of bad character, they can use that information. So whenever they, they come forward in later life, say, I was abused by this person, that person, and I totally believe them, they're discredited instantly by the court. And it's done deliberately, Sean, and, and it that will come in the chronology. Anyway, I went up to the, this kid's home in Cambridgeshire and I sat down with this, this little girl. And she was a bit of a horror. But God bless her, she's dead now. She died in mysterious circumstances um, and still a kid at the time when she died. And that never got properly looked into. And our grandparents are still campaigning for justice because they know something went wrong. You're allowed to say her name. Yeah, her name is Zoe Tomsett. And God bless Zoe Tomsett. And actually someone, her mother died recently and her mother's friend got in touch with me and said, John, you're right. We remember looking for Zoe on the street, me and her mum and... Uh, yeah, so very, very sad, but it, it was something that really spurred me on to, to, to keep fighting on this. Um, so no matter what they put me through, the kids go through a million times more, you know. So I went to see her and she and she started explaining. She said, look, this this one woman, street name of Foxy, uh, is pimping me out. We knew Foxy. We, she'd been about on the street for a long time. And it was all around the Sussex Gardens area of Paddington. And again, geography comes in because it's a lot of hotels there and they will rent the rooms by the hour and it's very near to the, to the Arab areas. I'm not saying that the Arabs are predominantly the, the punters, but 
there was money there and it was also the the, the more dodgy areas of Paddington where the drugs were so everything was catered for and she said she pimps me out for crack sometimes she gives me money sometimes she takes me to posh restaurants so one restaurant I know they get £2,000 for me and another place I'll go to a crack house and she'll get 20 rocks for me and she gives me some of the rocks and she was a little crackhead herself and she said but she gets me to get my friends involved and one of my friends is involved and I'll give you her name and and I'll tell you of others so uh, she started working with us um, as a victim not as an informant she was a victim and she was treated as a victim and she was treated very well by us um, unfortunately the, the system failed her miserably um, and then she started introducing me to other girls and other girls and other girls and other girls and there was one girl and this, this girl was a traveller she was nine years old when it was happening, nine years old at the relevant time. And it was just horrific. And it was everywhere. Now, there was a judge that was involved. Um, and this judge was involved with, with this girl, Foxy. Um, and there was, we never got the name, but there was rumours of a senior police officer. There was someone uh, that was high up in the BBC in the uh, arts and music department. Um, and the venues, they would range from upmarket Curzon Street Mayfair restaurants which are the you know the top echelons of, of, of that sort of scene Was Jimmy Savile act, active around this time? Yeah, uh, well Jimmy Savile was active until the day he died wasn't he but uh, um, you know it, it was it was massive but um, there was a barrister involved oh it, it was it was just it was it was going mad you know it was going and in the end we were dozens and dozens of kids they were coming forward by the day it was hemorrhaging anyway a social worker got in touch with me and the social worker was down in the Croydon area and we'd spiraled out of central London by this time and we started going everywhere and and Croydon was another big hub uh Southall and the East End and uh, it, it was honestly it was just mad so she's this girl from Southall a social worker said uh John, we've been going to your unit for 10 years. For the last decade, we've been pleading with you. She said, we've got girls that are turning up, young girls, kids. One girl, she's got so many cysts and abscesses inside her vagina that she oozes when she comes in. She is dying. She said, there's one lad. He is being pimped out. He is in the latter stages of HIV AIDS. He is dying on his feet. He is still being pimped out. Your unit don't even turn up. She said, you've got to help us. You have to help us. There was mainly me and another girl. We did have a few little support staff afterwards, but me and another girl, and we were absolutely sinking. And I said, right, the only way to get more funding, we didn't even have a car. We had to borrow cars. I said, is that we, um, everything we do, we record it, everything. She said, but it's sensitive. I said, it doesn't matter. Let's record it, and I'll, I'll pull it forward to the management. So I wrote a very, very uh, concise and factually based report, two paragraphs. Uh, I handed it in and to the intelligence unit. Within an hour, I got a detective inspector screaming down the phone at me, get to see me now. So I went in there and he starts what we call fuck chucking. Who the hell do you think you are? You effing, you can't put things like this. And he said, we, you know, you're demeaning the unit. We've been doing this for decades. And, you know, who do you think you are? And it turned out that all the, these reports of these kids from the care homes, whenever the kids went missing and turned up in red light areas, were archived. And I found these reports went back a long way. 
So known about it for uh, well, at least 15 years, they knew about it. Anyway, he, start, he said, you're off the case. And I went, well, you, you can't kick me off. I said, this has become my life. Um, he went, you're off it. It's shutting down. And he, he just belittled everything. So I then went to see the chief superintendent. And I'm going to say this now, that he actually was a nice guy. Albeit he is the architect and the instigator of everything that happened to me. But he was a, a very respected and light guy. And I said to him, uh, you know, oh, Governor, what's going on? He said, look, come and see me. And what he, he said to me, go and have a holiday. Take as long as you want. And when you're, when you're nice and safe and ready to come back, come back and we'll have a chat. So I took the kids away and I come back and sat down and I said, uh, Governor, I don't know what I've done wrong. I, I thought this was going to be a good thing. I, I really thought I'd given them the goose, the shit and the golden egg here, you know. And he told me, he said, what the hell have you done? He said, this is going to F us. And I said, the F word before, but I don't keep saying it. But he said, I want, this will F us past, present and future. You have no idea how deep this goes. He said, if you mention a word of this outside of this room, he said, you will be thrown to the walls. And he said, you will lose your home, your children and your job. Now, one thing is, okay, try and sack me and I'm going to lose my home anyway. But, but what arrogance to say that you can be the architect to take my children off me. And that really got me. I thought, how oh, dare it's only God can take my kids off me. And, and But he was confident in saying that. He said, you've got no idea who and what you're dealing with. So that showed me how big this was. Right. And uh, so that was it. I was off and I was scared. And I genuinely was scared. And of course, I'd seen it before with the canal thing. Uh, and I and I was told by the senior couple that this is what they'll do to you, and and I knew it was political, and and I was worried, and it and it caused um, a real demise in me. It, it caused a lot of anger and a, and a lot of hatred towards the system. And he said, "You've got to take an, have an undertaking that you never ever look into child prostitution again." So I said, "Okay." Anyway, I said, "I want to carry on working with the kids." He went, "But you never look into this again. This is shut. This is sealed." I went, "All right." Anyway, I went to the child protection unit, which is different to the vice. It was dealing with, you know, when social services get involved with a kid and the kids at risk, the, these detectives come in. So I was sent to the London Borough Haringey. It was covered Tottenham. And so it covered some posh areas, Muswell Hill and all that. But on the whole, it you know, the areas I always worked were, were, were Tottenham, you know, North Hackney, that sort of, you know, that uh, area, a very deprived area. And... Um, I remember first going there, I was taking, talking to the detective sergeant that runs it, and I said, uh, do you have any problems with, with um, child prostitution? She went, oh, no, 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 none. I said, right. I said, uh, no kids going from kids' home. She went, oh, no, there, there is a girl that was looking into it, but she's left to have a kid now. And a lot of these child protection officers, I'm not denigrating them because they, they were the hardest working coppers I have ever, ever met in my life. You know, when they're going about the detectives, you see these these shiny suited lot from the flying squad and all that. They, they, they're nothing compared to these child abuse coppers. They really do put their heart into it. God bless them. Not all of them, but most of them did. And uh, she said, there was one girl, she'd gone to have a kid. and But she used to go to meetings with the social services about the child prostitution. She said, and, um, no, nothing's been, she did it for two years. Nothing's been highlighted. So... We've got a detective sergeant saying that in that borough, that inner London built-up borough, 
that there are no problems with child prostitution, categorically saying it, and then saying that there was an officer dealing with it for two years, never come across one case of it. He said, you'll go to a meeting. So he said, it's a jolly. So if you go to a meeting, what do you call job or not? Go to meetings, go home. So I know now why this girl did it. So anyway, so with that in mind, she pisses off this this sergeant uh, and I get the phone and I ring up social services. I, I knew someone else. I said, look, couldn't fax me for a list of the care homes. But it turns out that Haringey's got more care homes than any other borough that in the UK. It, it's got 26, or it did have back then. And I got factory this lists, care homes, right, uh, with the phone numbers. And this is how it works, Sean. So I've been told two years, not a problem. I get the list and I start off care home number one. So <laughs> dialed the number, picked the phone up, introduced myself, said no one's in any trouble here. I'm looking at this problem with children and prostitution goes quiet i said look i'm here to work with you my friend you know and a lot of the poor staff that work there that you know it's not them you know and we gotta look at the care homes they're sold as a business so the care home manager owner will buy it you can buy them at the dalton's weekly these care homes and and they they were getting up to two thousand pound per child per week and some of these these homes had five kids so there'll be like a like a house like this that we're in here you know, in a residential street, five kids in there. That's ten k in your pocket every week. I mean, my God, kachink, you know. And on the whole, they had five children. So I said, "How many children you got?" I said, five. I said, "How many of them do you lose at a weekend due to prostitution?" I went three. Right, and honestly, that was a time scale. Bang. So two years, Ethel. In that four or five minutes, three kids. Right. And that went on consistently, right? So by the end of three days, I'd done all of them. I had 50 kids. So I then held a meeting. So I got all these support agencies and, and everything else, brought them all in and social services. And I said, well, we need to sort this out. And I started talking to some of the kids and some of them started working with me. Brilliant. And they started naming places where they were taken and everything else. And then there was uh, a leading children's charity uh, the woman in charge of um, trafficking, this term they use, trafficking, and I want to go on about that in a short, if I may, uh, turned around and said, you're treading on toes. You think you know everything. She said, we've been looking at this for a long time. There's been a unit set up. There's a cop already looking at it. There's a superintendent looking at it. You ought to back down now. And then a senior social worker in charge of child exploitation or whatever she turned around and she said what the fucking hell you done john and she said we've got now putting 50 care plans i said but you knew about these kids she said yeah but while they were making money they were quiet you know and that's how it went on and of course then what happened i i had to go and see a superintendent and i was panicking thinking oh shit they're gonna add me now um he told me to back away said this detective's looking at it i spoke to her when i met her lovely girl and she said, I've been to two meetings. I've never even met any of the kids. How the hell could I deal with that? That was one borough in London. So you imagine all 26 boroughs, if we take that as the norm, although it's not going to be the norm, you know, but you're talking thousands of kids. And and these kids go missing. So they'll go missing on a Thursday and they'll come back on a Monday. They're usually worse for the wear through drugs and through sexual activity and coming down from it. And, you know, so there'll be all health problems. Some of them will be bleeding. They'll all be high and they'll be kicking off until the middle of the week when they'll be looking forward to going out and getting their drugs again and then going back out to work again. 
And so when they say about kids going missing, yes, they go missing, but they come back. Now, the police units, they've got the missing persons unit, which take records of this. So they knew about it. That would be given to the child protection units. They knew about it. And if it was prostitution, it'd be given to the vice unit as well. Yet none of them were talking to each other. The vice unit wouldn't come to the meetings. The missing person team did, but they said, we're desk, we're desk jockeys, we're desk bound. What do we do about it? So they knew about these kids, these failings, and did nothing. And all the time, money was being made, money. And then, of course, when you look at these kids that are involved in it, girls and boys, they would just start getting involved in crime because there'll be antisocial behaviour, there'll be a lot of violence because there's a lot of anger, you know, and then that would lead to the Class A drug addiction, which then goes way to the prostitution, to the, the street prostitution, to the shoplifting, the robberies and everything else. And then when you look at these kids, these are kids that aren't getting educated. So we're going about, you know, you know, the angle you come from, children, and I've watched your stuff, and we got illiteracy rates of up to eighty percent in some prisons. You know, we we've got kids, uh, people in prison. The majority are coming from abused backgrounds. Not all of them, but they are. So really, I was right in what I was looking at. Now I weren't the first, and many have looked at this, but we all get shut up. We all get shut up. Now, of course, lo and behold, I moved. I moved, and I'm sent now over to the west side of London. You know, and this keeps happening and keeps happening. And in the end, I did blow the whistle officially. And I made, I had already done it, but then I made allegations of corruption and I made sure my youngest was a little bit older and they couldn't really take my kids off me because I knew that they'd come for me. Now, bear in mind, I was threatened with the loss of my home, my job and my children. I made allegations of corruption against senior officers saying they'd deliberately covered it up. They said, we're going to take this seriously. Now, the strange thing is I rang up the corruption command and said, I need to talk to a senior female detective. And this bloke went, well, you'll talk to me first and use a uniform constable. I went, no, you, you're not listening to me. You get me. And it, it was an effort to get this. Anyway, they granted me a, 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 a detective chief inspector, DCI woman, met me. And funny enough, on my way up to the meeting, I was accosted in a corridor by one of the um, inspectors that was on the vice unit when it was covered up. I was thinking, what, what, what are you doing here? And he was like, all right, John, uh, and started talking about the senior officer that had covered it up. He was really not, and he's collared me in a corridor and thinking, how the bloody hell did you know what's going on? So, oh, anyway, so I managed to get to her and, I, and she said, why did you want to talk to me? And I said, because you, mom, cannot roll up your trouser leg and she laughed and she went I know exactly what you mean now the funny thing is a couple of years later a few years later that exact line was used in the line of duty in the document in the the drama when they were dealing with child prostitution I thought I wonder if someone's nicked that off me you know so anyway she said we're going to take this extremely seriously we are really gonna you know um what I did was then I actually walked out of the police I thought I can't work I can't work with these snakes anymore they will do anything and everything to nab them. And they were. They were really starting to pick on me for everything. And one day I just erupted in the office, kicked off and said, right, F the lot of you, I ain't putting up with this. And I went home. Then what ensued was a two-year bullying campaign to have me put in prison. So that was a 27 years after you joined? Yeah, we're not far off it. You know, uh, we were talking about, because it went, this bullying went on for a few years, soon about the 24th year. Um, so... 
then I kept getting served with, well, basically the equivalent is a summons. It'll be a bit of paper saying you're under investigation and it's gone to CPS. So at the same time, prominent police officers have come forward, one of them being Maggie Oliver, the, the lady in uh, uh, Rochdale. The grooming gang. The she's, grooming gang. She's agreed to come on the podcast. Yeah, uh, Nick, by 95%. So I then made my way to Adamsbrook Hospital, which is in Cambridge, which is nearly 100 miles away from where I was. I made my way up there. I was covered in mud because I'd been grafting. And my other boy was there. He said that they don't think he's, they're gonna, <sighs> he's gonna make it. Was it a car crash or something? It was playing rugby. Playing rugby? Playing rugby, snapped his neck, right? And um, snapped all his neck and he's um, almost a perfect cut. <sighs> anyway, they... They got a surgeon on and he remained in intensive care um, and I was there every day going up there. And then one day um, I get a phone call and they said, can you can you come now? Can you come now? So I made my way to hospital and there was two um, consultants there and they said, we've lost him. Unfortunately, oh we've lost him. Well, but we've got a brain pattern back. He's on 100% um, life support but we have got a heartbeat and a brain pattern back. We don't think he'll survive. He was dead for seven and a half minutes. Um, he's unlikely to survive it, um, but we will keep the machine going for five days. And they said, if it comes to it, will I sign a disclaimer to, to turn it off? And I was like, gentlemen, you've done what you can. Of course, I'm, you know, he said, you can go to court. I said, look, I'm not interested. You've done, you know, they said 10 minutes we were on him. And, but he was dead for seven and a half minutes anyway. So I sat with him. Uh, oh, it's horrendous. I mean, anyone who's been in that circumstance, you know, God bless them, he had pipes everywhere. And, and a, a lovely girl that I was working with, she went to my superintendent and said, look, John's in trouble. This you, You've got to know what's happened now. He's um, He's got no money and this has happened to his son. He can't even, he's sleeping in his car in the hospital, which I was. I, I actually become a blood donor because I got free sandwiches and I could use their parking space, you know, and that's, um, and so I was getting free biscuits and sandwiches and, uh, you know, because I had my blood donor badge and things. So I was doing that. So anyway, on the third day, he moved and he woke up and I said, listen, T, I said, just, just move your legs, just move your legs. So he, he flipped his feet a little bit grabbed my hand and I said son I love you and he couldn't talk because he was <sighs> anyway I've gone home and when I get home this girl and my work's gone to my superintendent right bear enough and told her what's going on I get home there's two detectives there waiting from Hertfordshire police the Met police have sent them there and then they want to arrest me for child neglect because that they they state that the Met Police have accused me of leaving my 16-year-old, no, I think he might have been 15-year-old at the time, 15-year-old boy home alone. I said, I've been with my dying son. And bear in mind, my 26-year-old son was there anyway. And I said to this cop, I said, you've got to be taking the piss, seriously. I said, let me tell you my story before you do anything. They searched my house, they searched my fridge, and they actually interviewed my son. And then I said, look, listen, let me tell you. And by this time, I was I just had enough. And he said, the Met Police told us that you'd um, you'd left your son home alone. He said, we've been lied to and you've been stitched up, son. So bear in mind what was said to me by this chief superintendent, you're going to lose your job. Well, I'm looking at going to prison. You're going to lose your home. You're going to lose your children. 
So this is what these bastards do. So if they can do it, you know, when you're saying about you know, gangsters, I was talking with Chris Lambiano, says about what Nipper Reed done and things like that. And and, um, and I said, well, they've done it to me. They They will stop at nothing to silence you because the key to all of this, the key to all the shite in society, and I mean this in the most respectful way, is child abuse. Now, what I do now, I work with victims and survivors of abuse. I campaign for um, protection for police whistleblowers because we have no employment law. I've been in Parliament untold times. I've been before the Home Secretary's team. Um, I've had cabinet ministers with me and everything. We Tomorrow, this is probably a pre-record, but tomorrow uh, we've got a protest in London. Every month we have a protest out there. Um, I, um, I help victims try and put cases back together again where the police have deliberately covered things up. And it's a no-brainer. The child abuse is the core of everything. It all comes down to the child abuse on an 80% probability, you know. And for some reason, this government doesn't want it coming out. It does not want it coming out. And we've seen it with the independent um, inquiry into, they call it ICSA, I-I-C-S-I-A. They've got this um, independent inquiry. Four, we're on our fourth chair now because they the chairs keep leaving. One of them, uh, they put two in which were linked to uh, Leon Britton's family. And, and Kelsa Priest, he was named, you know, once again. Uh, you know, um, and then the third one, I think uh, Jay, Justice Jay, I think she was the, the New Zealand girl. She, her parting words were because MI5 wouldn't let her see any files and said the security services will never allow you justice. Just to clarify that, and Leon Britton was a senior politician in the Conservative Party under it was Margaret Home Thatcher. Secretary. Home, Home Secretary. Secretary. And, and the other one is Ted Heath. You know, I have spoke to people that are victims of Ted Heath. So many of them. I go out and I do these things called Wedges Whistleblowers now. Um, I mean, Maggie's lucky enough. She's got the, 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 the national media beside me. I create my own media platform. And I just go out and I've, I've spoke to people like Lambion that have been in prison. I speak to prison officers, very similar to what you do, Sean. Um, I would do it from the iPhone, but uh, victims of abuse, victims of satanic abuse. How prolific um, was Ted Heath then? Oh, incredibly prolific. And, 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 and let, let's keep this in context, right? Um, I went for a job. And it was to do with um, top secret information. It's graded. So it goes uh, non-sensitive, sensitive, something else. And they're, they're color-coded as well. It's yellow, green, brown, then it goes red. It's a bit like the, bad, the belts for karate and all that stuff. You know, anyway, red is top secret. Anyway, I had to be vetted. And, and I had to do what they call uh, DV vetting, develop vetting. So in the develop vetting thing, they need to know everything about you. They even need to know your sexual partners. And one of the things uh, was said to me by a detective sergeant that was doing the vetting, who was a lesbian, she said, a lot of gays fail the vetting because too many sexual partners. Now, this is not my words. This is what they do. This is the benchmark of facts that they go with. And, and, and a bit of a hedonistic lifestyle. And also, if you're involved in swinging and things like that, you ain't going to get vetting clearance. You're not going to get it. So I had to... Uh, and girl I was engaged to she was uh, from Lithuania and her father had been in prison in, in Belarus and they even had to know about that and they so it's really they really go down uh, anyway I, I, I passed the developer vetting so let's take both Leon Britton and Ted Heath Ted Heath was always cruising gay areas you know even when he was a backbencher then a cabinet minister and then in the forefront of, of parliament 
So he, everything he did, everyone around him would have been vetted to a high standard. So how is that man with such a questionable sexual history and a proclivity for the like, and he did the, the ponchons, whatever, for young boys, which is what he had, especially those from the care homes. And I'm going to tell you a bit more about that. Why was he allowed the the, the prime position, the premiership of, of politics? Ag again, Leon Britton. Again, it, it, we got 634 MPs, right? How often do you hear in the paper about the MP for, for Witness being involved in it, the MP for Loughborough, the MP for for Cornwall. You don't. You hear the same ones all the time. It's the same ones consistently. We are hearing time and time again. There was um, two coppers uh, that were based in um, number 10. Uh, back then, now it's part of the diplomatic thing. I think it was back then, it was just parliamentary protection or something. Um, uh, one of them was an ex-military guy. And they were removed because they kept seeing young boys were taken up into Ted Heath's residency three times a week. And one of them turned around and confronted Ted Heath because they thought if they tell their bosses, he said, well, what are they going to do about it? They're going to they're going to attack us and it will carry on. So he, he confronted him. And I actually gave this information to the Home Secretary's office. I gave it to him and I turned around and said, sir, this stops and it stops now. And he said, fair enough. It did stop for two weeks and then it continued and then it continued you know uh, these aren't liars but again what happens is they brought in this legislation the 2003 criminal justice act right bad character information and people thought brilliant this is a real step forward for criminal justice because what was happening is burglars were going up and getting a not guilty and then they're reading out their pre-cons they're going oh my god he's done this 50 times he's had us over so they said right and this is how they sold it and I always, when I do my talks, say it, that was mis-selling. The reason it was brought on, because they knew that the victims and survivors were, were yesterday's victims and tomorrow's witnesses. They are coming forward. And they knew that they would make allegations in the care homes. The amount of them, when I've spoken to them, they said, we would go and say well, the headmaster in the house, what was happening. And we were told as liars and not only that, we would be caned for it as well. And then we would be buggered by whoever we're grasped on. And that would happen time and time again. We're getting these kids' homes like the Shirley Oaks, Beechcroft. Oh, you can name them. You know, they're, they're all across. And and the other thing I, I want to say, Sean, and, and again, I'm careful how I say things because of the environment I'm now in, but everyone's got to take responsibility. There is, without a doubt, an organised crime link in this. There's organised crime. It's linked in with high-ranking coppers and low-ranking, more corrupt coppers and politicians. We were just talking about this with um, we had a narco journalist who, who lives in Mexico and he's talking about that link. But I, we, I don't know about the link in London. How does that work? It, it does work. I mean, I, I won't say the name of this one firm, but there was one firm uh, and they were picking up the girls and the girls told me, you know. Um, and again, I've got to be careful because the people I work with, I need to protect them and protect myself as well. But... Um, and and some of these kids are still alive, and some of these these firms are getting old now. But if it was going now, it was, you know, was back then. So you're saying the mafia providing the underage girls to the politicians? Yeah, yeah. Because what you got with the gangsters are that kids are drawn to them, you know, and they're people from the street, so they've got that that barriers broke down anyway, you know. And then of course, I mean, there was one building, there was a police building that kept getting mentioned, and I know where it is, and I know what it is, and. Um, 
there were, it was a meeting place meant to be for homosexual police officers back in, in the 70s, but uh, it weren't. It was where young boys were taken, and they were taken there by the gangsters, and then the police were taken over from there. Um, so, you know, this, uh, and, and where, it's, where it's been muddied is by damaging someone's character straight away because they're people of dishonesty. So if you shoplift, it's dishonest crime. So if you say to someone that, you know, you're dishonest, it doesn't mean you, people don't come up think thoughts they're a thief. They think he's a liar and they've done it on purpose. They've deliberately put that in on purpose. The other thing, but well, this is where my narrative may vary from Maggie and a few of the others, is that all we're hearing about is Pakistani grooming games, Muslim grooming games, Muslim grooming games, blah, 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 blah. Now, let me put this from my point of view. I worked in London, right? London is one of the biggest cities, urban conurbations in Europe, right? It's got the most diverse community of any city in the world, you know. Um, we got not shy of 11 million people now in here. We had one case, and it was a small case, of Bengalis in the east end of London pimping out their kids. 80% of people that abuse and traffic, this word trafficking, and trafficking is a movement, a person, movement of a person for the purpose of crime from point A to point B. That's what trafficking is. So it's not like the Taken films where you've got the Serbian gangsters taking them out to the rich Arabs and all that. Absolute bollocks, right? They're picking these kids up from the kids' homes and they are taking them wherever and then they are bringing them back. We had Lithuanian gangs doing it. We had Kosovan Albanians doing it. We had Jamaicans doing it. We had British doing it. Mothers and fathers doing it more than anyone else. 80% of all abuse is in and around the family or those with the with, with parental responsibility for the children. You're saying that the parents are committing the sexual acts on their own children or they're giving them Both. out for prostitution? Both. 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 And I'm not saying 80% of parents do it because they're not. But 80% of the trafficking is done within that family network. And this is what I'm saying. So that, you know... Okay, if you go to Bolton and if you go to parts of Luton and that, yes, you're going to get predominantly Pakistani areas and all that. But if you go to the East End, you're, you're, you're going to get a lot of Polish, you, you know, well, they're in Acton, Lithuanians in around Stratford, uh, you know, Kosovans, you know, in West Ham and things like that. So you're going to get different demographics doing it. And if we look at the history, if there is a history of prostitution, you know, back in the day, the Maltese were doing it. That tiny little Catholic island, you know, nestled off the coast of Arabia, you know, in Cyprus, you know, they they were the biggest gangs that were pimping out kids on the Maltese, but they'd only took over from the Italians. And then who took over from them? The Jamaican boys took over and then it moved on and it moved on. So it progressed. So when they concentrate in on this, it's a political weapon and it's and it's not the truth. And I'm not saying it don't happen. Of course it happens. And and to anyone who's a victim of them, God bless you. And, and I raised money for a charity in Rotherham, uh, the Swinton Lock, that that does a lot of work for victims of the you know Muslim. Going, I, I cycled to Penzance and swam around the Isles of Scilly with them, you know. Um, so I'm aware of it, but it's not accurate, right? And and let's let's look at another thing about this, right? This is organised criminality, bar none. The kids make the money more than anything else, right? And and there's something else I want to mention about the, the religious institutions as well. We hear openly about 
Rochdale, of course. Uh, we, there was one in Newcastle, Sheffield, Reading, Luton. We not heard one case from London. And why? Because they shut us up. They closed us down. And I'll tell you what happened. When they shut it down, what I was doing with, with the other girl, so I'm not taking the full credit for this, and I'm not saying that the girl worked with got accommodation. I didn't get anything for this, so I didn't get any credit anyway. Um, that, for seven years, that vice unit never took on one case. The dedicated unit was meant to do it for seven years, did nothing. Now, there's a public failing here, and when I get onto the independent... Um, uh, the ICSA inquiry I'm going to say that and I've said it to their barrister that needs to be looked in there needs a public inquiry what the Met Police was doing and why they were doing that and when I was threatened there was a witness in the room uh, there was a woman that was in charge of HR she saw me many years later and she grabbed hold of me in Scotland Yard gave me a big hug and cried and said I'm so sorry They that little girl died so the little girl that came forward when it all got hushed up she was found dead and I said, I know she died. And she said, they never took on one case when you left. And I watched them bully you and I did nothing. I'm sorry. I said, it's okay. It's not your fault. So they deliberately did it. They deliberately did it. Um, so, I mean, I I went to see two brothers, uh, twins, and uh, I'm not going to give their names. They've been in the paper, but they, they, they told me something. And it was a Catholic home they went in in Northern Ireland. And they weren't just raped themselves by priests. They were made to rape each other while the priests sat around masturbating. And they were pimped out and they were pimped out. Who were they pimped out by? The Catholic paramilitaries pimped them out. So we've even got, you know, the IRA involved in it because it's money. And when, when there's money, there's there's no sentiment and there's no conscience. And, and, you know, this is what they said. This is what was happening. And if the kids said anything, they were kneecaps. And they were kneecapped on the school grounds. So it's a dangerous, dangerous game, you know. I I had a meeting with the uh, the Catholic um, Cardinal. Uh, oh, his name goes Vincent Nichols. Anyway, he, he wouldn't see me, so I saw his bishop instead. And I sat down with him and I wanted to do an interview. But in the end, it was just a chat. And I had someone with me that wouldn't let that person in the meeting. And he said... <laughs> Uh, this bishop said to me, he said, you know, the Catholic Church, John, is in this soft Irish accent, he says, we've fallen fallen victim to all these allegations. He said, sure, even the other day, he said, we had a, a, a bishop in Ireland went away for allegedly abusing young boys. I said to him, Father, the Catholic Church is not a victim of this. That bishop went away because the law decreed he should get away and because that was justice. I said, he went away for the rape and torture of a young boy. The victim here are the young children. Do you not see this? And he just wouldn't have it. And I just and then he said, "What a slur on a good man's name as well." And I went, "Who?" He went, "Poor Ted Heath." And this was the bishop that's in charge of the the London and the South said that. And I and I said, "I'm taking my leave, Father. Do not get up. I'm off." And I walked out. And I did a little um, interview thing outside Westminster Cathedral, just saying, "From now on, I brought up a Catholic." I said, "Me and the Catholic Church. That's it. We're we're parted. We're gone." I'm, you know, I believe in Jesus because Jesus loves the children. But why is that mindset so concrete? Do you think I saw that documentary about uh, sins of my father? Oh right, yeah, the one in America, and they just kept like bringing in these high-priced lawyers, making the victims out look like you know bad, 
and then they'd tell the family that they would justice would be served and, and this would never happen again, you know. And they'd just move him 20, 30 miles away and do it again. He had hundreds of victims. Well, well, well it, was, it was ironic because I went to a Catholic school and there was a priest there um, would come around your house and he would do this thing where he had um, like this rough stubble and he'd say to mum, have they been saying their prayers? Have they been good? You know, and my mum would say, well, they haven't washed up. And he would lift you up and he'd rub your cheek on his cheek and say, you've got to be good for your mum. Right, he was a great big old beast, smelly bloke. Anyway, years later, uh, we had a big get together. People that went to school, and uh, there was a lot of Irish kids. You know, we had a lot of Spanish, Irish, and and you know, it was Catholic school. And uh, this, this Irish lad went. And we said, "Has the police been in touch with you about Father So and So?" And I went, "No, why?" He said, "Did he used to come around your house and uh, do that thing with his with his stubble?" And I went, "Yeah." He said, oh, right. So he used to rub your willy on his stubble as well, did he? I went, no. And it turned out he was doing it to the Irish kids because they were more compliant and they would never say anything. And if it was something was said, nothing was said. Anyway, he, he was investigated and he was moved. And where did they move him to? They moved him to Kilburn, which is the biggest Irish community outside of Ireland. And <laughs> I mean, it just it, it just defies any logic. Uh, but it's not just the church that has done this. I mean, all religious institutions have done it. And, you know, this is just as shameful. When I was on the child abuse team in Herringay, and I say they need a public inquiry, they really do, into how this works, an allegation came in about an imam in the East End of London that had been fiddling with boys or girls or whatever. Anyway, young kids, he'd been sexually abusing them. And... Uh, Went, right, we'll go and get him. I went, no, you can't do that. Why? We need a community meeting. So before, so if, if say you're alleged to do something, right, no arguments. We go around, we get you, we search your house, we seize your computer, you come with us, right? And that's it. everyone bar the queen that happens to. But no, because he was an imam and it may well, if he was a rabbi, a priest or whatever, but any religious leader, they had to have a meeting with their unit and local community and all that before they made a decision, not a police decision, a collective decision to go and arrest him. And usually it was done on an invite so he can get rid of whatever he wants. And this is what had to happen. And and this is what the police were part of this multi-agency think tank that would do that. I mean, that is unconstitutional. It's perverse. It's corrupt. It's just bloody wrong. You know, and it's been going on and on and on. And they say the same things. They've got these independent inquiries, lessons learned. Well, what do they do with these independent inquiries? No one ever gets nicked. No one ends up going to prison for it. All it ends up doing is they'll, they'll bring out a new way of doing things. And in and another thing what they do is they absolutely leech everyone of every bit of valuable information they got. So all those that have come forward about Ted Heath, Mike Veal was a chief constable of Wiltshire, another incredibly brave man, and he warned me. He said, John, you be so careful. And I said, who's attacked you? Because it was your ilk that attacked me. You senior officers that have done me, of which I have no respect by him. He's a lovely guy. And he said, oh, oh with me, it come from the House of Lords and MI5. Because, again, it, it upsets the political and financial stability of the country, the economic stability and the financial stability. And it's always been used as a coercive tool. And and one of the other things which doesn't get spoken about, which is prevalent, is satanic abuse. And there is a lot of that. Before we get to that, then let me ask you a question. What's your opinion of Operation U-Tree? Well, again, U-Tree, I mean, was the Savile one, wasn't it, U-Tree? And, and saying that, U-Tree, 
they their main office is in Stratford in uh, the East End of London and I had to visit their office once and there was a guy there I knew him I used to work with him in South London and I walked in there and he's at a desk there's his chair and his mate's chair and it's just stacked up like that with folders and I went you're busy he went this is you tree so that was you tree it was a desk full of folders like that and so all this about you see it on the telly these big operation rooms yeah, yeah. it was an old crappy desk full up with blue colour folders with two blokes hiding behind it. Wow. And that was you tree. Um, again, far too late. I mean, the, how much information was, was always being pushed out about Savile and nothing was done about it. And But not only that, um, there was allegations he was involved in satanic abuse as well, Savile and you, necrophilia. Do you think then that the targets of you tree, all these celebrities, were prosecuted to appease the public and to stop it from getting to the elite 100%. political yeah. level. Yeah, 100%, yeah. And um, there's some brilliant MPs. I had a letter-writing campaign where everyone writes their MP about this cause. So it's a two-strand thing. Protect the police, whistleblowers. Now, there's a lot of people that don't like the police, but we need a police force, whichever way. I don't like them at times, but we need them. But the police are a valuable source of information. If they are silenced this information dies. They cannot be silenced. There's got to be a law that if someone knows about it, copper or not, they have to legally speak out. And if it's covered up, they need to legally speak out and be properly protected, not attacked like I was, like Mag Oliver was, like Lenny Harper was and Mike Ville was. This is what they do to us. They try and demonise us. Now, I'm a bit different because I won't be silenced. I will not be silenced. I don't want to commit libel and I don't want to be an idiot like that. And people will say name names or that. I'll do it in my own time and I'll do it under public domain rules. Um, but there will be information that is being shared all the time. Like I said to you about vetting, they will have these, these prominent um, ministers will have pro officers, protection officers, and they will know what goes on. One of them, he ended up as a security guard in Bond Street in the jewellers. And he saw me one day and come up to me. And he went, um, and I think he was Leon Britton's protection officer. And he went, we knew what he was doing. We knew what he was doing. You know, and again, anyone who speaks out, they're crushed, they're hammered, they're put down, they're silenced, they're rubbished. Unfortunately, the victims that come forward have got checkered past that we're seeing, mental health problems, which is another issue. We could go on about how much mental health is caused by abuse. You know, um, and th they pick on it. I mean, there's a saying in the Bible, and it you see the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, yet ignore the log in yours. And this is exactly what they do. So, with Jeffrey Epstein's first case, they kind of give him this sweetheart deal whereby he was just done for prostitution, which basically made the victims prostitutes. Yeah. So, th was that so that they could not then give their testimonies? They wouldn't be credible in court. But this is what they do. They, they, I mean, he's helping out now, but there's this uh, barrister, Michael Mansfield, who's made his big name for himself because he was on the Diana um, thing and, and he's helping out with the Shirley Oaks thing. And I'm not knocking him because he's doing good for victims. However, this guy made a name for himself, not by attacking the, the information, but he attacks the source of the information. So what he'd do is say there was a police officer, so I spat then, that was giving his evidence then they'd, they'd say right we want the police officer's discipline history which is totally irrelevant 
well, how comes that you're this and you're this and you was done for this? How can we believe this officer? So they attacked the source information. So they they were they were doing it to like the victims of abuse. They were attacking them. Well, you were classed as a liar in school, so you're a liar. You're lying. You're lying. And and this is what these bastards do now. You know they are. If you look, a kid is a cash cow from cradle to grave. All that child will do is make money for the system. They will make money through through the family courts, which are closed courts, right? They then go through to the juvenile courts where they make money out of the kid then. What do you mean they make money out of them in the courts? Well, by representing the kids in, in, in domestic cases. and All the legal child, fees and legal stuff. Legal fees, child protection cases. Creating and all that, yeah. work for the yeah. lawyers, judges. So, so, and, then, and then if you take the kids home that is making two grand a week, these barristers, it's just about 450 quid a week. I've seen the bills come through and I've seen them because I've spent most of your detective's work is in Crown Court and you do a lot in chambers with the barristers. Now, well, there are some good ones and there are some vile ones, right? Now, and there'll be the barristers that, that will really be up in arms about this, you know. But when you look at the breakdown, right, I send you an email. Say I did tree surgery for a while, right? And, and you say to me, John, come and look at my my tree and all that so i said okay right send me an email about what it is so you send me an email so i will i will put down 50 quid for receiving and 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 uh reading email and i'll itemize that that phone call i say what 30 quid for a phone call site visit well that was two hours of my time 450 pound an hour let's call that a grand right so all of a sudden i've done absolutely f all and you've got a bill for 1500 quid now imagine if that was the case you'd go to the police to watch dog and and that would be wrong. It's morally wrong, and it's just wrong. Such so taxpayers' money yeah. getting siphoned. Well, exactly, but they can do it, and it's classed as business, you know. And then, of course, they're part of a tax avoidance. Uh, what do they call it? Not tax. Uh, there's there's two tax avoidance. One's tax avoidance. One is tax evasion. Yeah. So we do tax evasion. They do tax avoidance, and it's legally allowed. Um, and it's criminal. And and you know, so if we go back to this kid, right? So a kid is coming to notice. Now, if a kid comes to the notice to the police, it's usually pretty late. You know, there's something bad going on. And if you don't catch that kid early, there's a lot of etched-in damage going on there. And if you're going to divest your kid from the family environment, that's going to cause a lot of pain as well, you know. But kids go into care because sometimes it's the safest place because the parents are doing horrible things to them, right? But there's a lot of trauma. Now, if they go into kids' home and then... That kid is making a lot of money, and they're also then back then they would they would have been abusing them, but now they're not protecting them; they're just letting them get abused, right? And then you've got social workers working with that, you've got barristers representing them, and on it goes and on it goes. And on the time this kid is criminal history profiles picking up. I remember once getting um, we, we call it precons; they used to call it rap sheets in America, didn't they? Of this one kid. And he was sat there for firearms and he had bullets and he was about, I don't know, 19, 20. And his barrister with his solicitor was there protecting him and all this. And so I was reading through it and I, and I turned around and I, and I just had enough. It was one of them moments. And I said, I'm really sorry, but look. And it started off with common assault. This kid had common assault with someone at school. And then it was shoplifting and then it went to ABH and it was combined to robbery and then up it went and then it went all the way up to possession of firearms and, and, and in GBH. I said, what has anyone that's meant to intervene and stop this cycle of abuse done to help him? They've done nothing but magnify it and feed it and make a bloody big dollar out of it as well. Now, Chris Lambriano with the... Uh, the charity that he was working for, the lay community, the rehab centre, 
£17,000 for one person per treatment plan, right? With an 80% success rate. 17 grand. Brilliant. A government-run one through the prison system, 70,000. And, and the prison, we have a recidivism rate in this country of 75 to 80%. It ain't working. Sean, if if I said to you, right, you want an extension built, right? And I turn around and say, Sean, I'm going to put you in touch with a builder. He's a good guy. He's very expensive. But bear in mind, 75 to 80% of what he builds falls down within the first year. You're going to tell me to do one, aren't you? But we're expected to swallow that load of crap from them and it don't work. So it's working for them financially, but it's a disaster for society. Yeah, and it's breaking these children. When they abuse these kids, they're breaking them. They're spiritually crushing them and they're setting them up to fail. And they are. And they're damaging them. And of course, there's also a macho thing with the men that they don't want to admit that that's happened to them. It happened to their mates and they might have seen it, but it never happened to me. And of course, there's anger and there's all. No one is intervening to break this cycle of abuse, you know. And when we do, the ones of us that do stand up, and there would have been social workers that stood up and NHS staff that would have stood up, we're crushed. And that's why we've all got to work together, you know. In the jail I was housed in Arizona, um, approximately 90% of prisoners were injecting heroin. And it, just living with them for almost six years and, and starting to hear the stories thrown away as kids, um, molested, seeing yep. parents die. And I, I understood, I started to understand that they were in such pain, they were doing the heroin because it, it really put them out of it. Well, well, what is heroin? It's an analgesic. It is a painkiller. And then what does the system do? It, it puts them in this brutal environment that just re-traumatizes them. Yeah. Where they're just doing drugs all day long to just not think about that as well. Yeah. So it is an absolute disaster. Um, you mentioned earlier about satanic paedophilia. Yeah. Elite satanic paedophilia. How does that work? Well, well I mean, I, I don't know about the elite thing, okay. but, but um, again, privilege and power. And I would have thought w with anything like that. I, I, I did deal with cases would come in um, to the unit I was on, but because I worked uh, an area that had big African community and, and Jamaican communities, we would get the Jamaicans had a, had a form of um, witchcraft called obia, and there was a lot of sexual abuse within that, and there was a lot of Congolese, and there was some also indigenous beliefs going there, and there was sexual abuse going on, you know, again, within select groups of that. Um, it's only really at, since I've I've come out that people have come to me. Now I, I met up with uh, a woman called Carolyn Bramhall, and B A R A M H A W L. She's written a book, and she's one of the leading therapists for what they call DID. It used to be called multiple personalities, and ninety percent of people with DID have come from satanic abuse because it's so horrific it fractures the mind. And I've had people then come to me and there's there's one girl that works very closely with me now and she's she she's got in excess of about 100 different personalities. And um, and, and it, it's just horrific. Um, but it's also understanding uh, this girl, she's come from America and she said she was part of what they call the MK Ultra program there. And it's, it's a mind dealing with the problem and now it fragments and shuts itself down and it gives itself an identity. So... Um, one of her um, characters called Icy and I went well is that something to do with water and she went yeah it's obviously that 
freezing water was used, you know, in one of them. And then there'll be another character that would deal with violence, another character would deal with this and deal with that. Um, and Carolyn, the therapist, and I said to her, Carolyn, I hope you get information about where all this is coming from. And she said, of course. I said, because otherwise it's of no use. You know, you've got to have the information because we've got to find out what's going on and where it's going on. And again, you've got to look at it. It's a covert thing. It's a very, very covert thing. And she said, I do. I said, well, where's one of the biggest hotspots? And she said, Surrey is is a massive area for it. Virginia Water, Camberley and, and all that. And funny enough, there was a book written uh, and I would encourage anyone to read it and it would explain it. And it very tight, much ties in with, with stuff that I was dealing with. And that will lead me on to an example. I always want to evidence everything I say. Sean, I always do. And it's called Dances with the Devil. Not dancing, Dances with the Devil. And it was written by a woman called Audrey Harper. Audrey Harper had come from the care system and ended up as a street prostitute in her teens in central London. Again, a lot of the people I spoke to, central London, the meat rack area. Again, gangsters were involved in procuring the kids around the Soho. This girl was in Soho. And she was on heroin and she was offered free drugs. But part of the thing was that she was taken to a satanic ritual. And once there, she was um, told to drink the blood of a, a baby that was killed in front of her. I've heard that of two women. Two women have both told me about babies being killed. And and again, with Satanism, from what I've been told, there there's no bystanders. You know, everyone is a participant. Some people said, oh, I watched it and it weren't really for me. Absolute nonsense, apparently. Anyway, she did this and was given drugs and she was sort of looked after. But one of her jobs was to go on the street and get the young kids from the care homes and the runaway kids to sex parties. And she said they wouldn't experience Satanism, but the the, the uh, coven people, the members of this church of Satan or whatever it was, liked shagging kids. So she would procure the kids for him which did tie into what some of the kids were saying to me. They'd go to parties in posh houses and, you know. And there was one guy, uh, what's his name? Paul. His first name was Paul. I won't give a second name because he might still be alive. Uh, he did write a book. I can't remember what it was. Uh, it's called No Human Touch. Um, anyway, Paul um, came to me and has spent most of his life in prison. And he said, I want to help. And he said, I want to, uh, when I was doing the transient paedophile thing, he said, I'll come and I'll, I'll talk to the police. I'll explain to the police how grooming works, which is brilliant, which is what we need. Someone who's been through it and he was abused from the age of four and everything else. And he said he was uh, on the street of London about 10, 11 years old. He said, doing every drug going, circus 70s, that area, very much when Audrey was on the street. And he said, uh, I had a pimp. He said, but I had a pimp for safety. My pimp weren't a bad man. You know, my pimp helped me. And he said, all I knew, I just wanted drugs. And all I knew was just to be buggered. And that was it, really. And he said, but I've never gone on to do it to any kids. And I'm not interested. I got married. And so it, it didn't, you know, send in that way, you know. But it's just what they did to him. And he, he used it as a tool to get money. He needed to survive. And he said, one day, a Rolls Royce pulled up round by the meat rack in Piccadilly. And he said, I went to get in and he said, my pimp grabbed hold of me. He said, don't get in now. He said, the last two lads that have gone with them too, there's two men in it, bear in mind, white Rolls Royce. We haven't seen him again. We reckon they killed him. 
So he went, okay, I won't do that then. He said, but I was so rattling for the for the heroin. As the pimp turned around, he gesticulated to the car to like do a circuit, you know. So the car went round and he jumped in it. And he said they took him to a big house in Hampstead uh, in North London, a very affluent area of Hampstead. And he said um, the next thing he knows, he's in the Royal Free Hospital on life support. And he said for three days they buggered and, and just abused me so bad. All his, um, his bowel and his intestine were ripped open where they'd done God knows what to him. And they'd dumped his body um, believing he was dead. And he was found and taken to the Royal Free. And he said, he said, but as he was tripping in and out of consciousness, he said, one thing that got him was these two were, were dressing up in suits to go to a wedding and had little um, uh, presents for their niece to go to a wedding. And they'd like, bugger me to death, but virtually, you know. And I, I said this to someone once. I said, now this might sound very obscure, right? Part of the investigations that we would have to look into child porn and things like that. And, and, um, that's what I'm saying about these coppers that have worked on these child abuse. They're, they're just incredible because most of us were, were drinkers. You know, I, there were two I worked with were actually registered alcoholics because the work was just horrific and it was relentless and we were absolutely overworked. The, the police refused to properly staff us, whereas if you went on a special branch or an anti-terrorist unit, You'd have a card, expense accounts, and I've been on similar units and had all these benefits. There, we'd have to share a car, one car between ten of us, uh, and it was just awful. And I would say to people, right, play a child porn video, right, and they're going about abuse. No, it ain't abuse. It's torture. It's ripping open body parts and putting them in extreme agony. And once someone's seen that, I'm telling you what, they this this bar the odd weirdo that would enjoy it which would be a small percentage 99.9% reoccurring would want the death penalty brought back the next day and they would when they seen what they do to the children you know and what they put them through is the child porn more prolific than the physical abuse well they're both the same they're hand in hand you know and each child porn image is a victim you know um, one person said to me that uh, when she was put into child porn she was drugged so she said she didn't realize what was going on really until the drugs had worn off and then she was in a lot of pain and she usually was infected with all sorts of gonorrhea syphilis and all the i mean things like that which destroyed a womb and a lot can't go on to have children and, and all sorts and if untreated they're deadly anyway uh, but she said with the satanic abuse was a bit different because they needed you lucid so they would give them hallucinogenics she said so the problem I have, because she has spoken to Operation Conifer because uh, with Teddy, because there was a linking with Teddy, although she's a girl, there was a connection with it. Um, said my memory was skewed by the hallucinogenics, so my statements would involve places, but then there'd be butterflies and rabbits jumping everywhere because she'd she'd needed to be awake for the for the thing. So, um, but again, easy to discredit, so easy to discredit them and call them. I mean. What we've seen with with Carl Beach, this Nick, okay, the guy had child porn images and and may well and probably is under the category of what they call a nonce. Um, and I'll tell you how that come about, nonce anyway. However, the case when we had with Zoe, a lot of the the uh, people that gave statements or witnesses were were crackheads, heroin addicts, and prostitutes. Uh, they called it herding cats. It was a, one of the hardest ways to get victim you know witnesses to a call 
but we did it and we did it and people actually said you know i i have lived this life however seeing a child in a crack house making to do this and to do that is wrong and i'm not having it so you can win um and there is a way of doing it and you just got to be very resolute and a stalwart in what you do but what they've done is they've just concentrated on him being a fantasist and everything else and really sort of sidetracked what he's gone. And now what you're seeing is people like Daniel Janner, which is um, Lord Janner's son, coming forward and saying we've got to stop these people from coming forward. So virtually um, saying that anyone who comes forward now has to be treated as a liar. Um, and can you imagine what that's doing to the victim and survivor community? They must be absolutely screaming. And They've done it on purpose to stop anyone ever getting. The other thing they do is, Sean, they're giving over-the-top sentences. So he got 18 years. I mean, my God, 18 years. He didn't kill anyone. He didn't. He's upset people by making allegations, which in my opinion are true allegations, against perverts. Um, we saw it with this woman, Sabine McNeil, who, who um, spoke out about the satanic abuse in Hampstead. She was given nine years, a woman in her 70s. And we just had another guy who's exposed, I think it was um, uh, Venables, the, the kid involved with the um, Jamie Bolger thing. He sort of exposed him and he's just been given nearly a year inside. So they're really hammering them to silence them, you know. And, and it's just through, it's, when you look at it, it's just a perverted country. It's a country that just seems to, everything circles around child abuse. Well, earlier on, you mentioned about the man who was going to teach the police or talk to the police, specifically yeah. how grooming occurs. Yeah. How does grooming occur? Well, I mean, what, what you're looking at is a kid that's devoid of what they call love. Now, we, we all need love, right? There's Maslow, this guy Maslow had this hierarchy of needs, didn't he? And the first thing is shelter and somewhere in the middle is, is a, a, a need to be part of something. Now... Um, what they found is that any attention is better than no attention. Now, um, I might be wrong with this. This is more your feel, but they showed that people that are put in solitary, the life expense is a lot less than people that are in a collective thing and just getting abuse anyway, because at least you'll be in part of something. But when you're isolated, it kills you. People do want to be around people in prison. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that. And and if you isolate someone, you, you, you kill them. It's a bit like they do it with dolphins. They just die. Um, so... You know, the, the the child will tend to go back to the abuser. You know, someone said it's a bit like a tramp's dog. It's just got loyalty, whereas a cat will run off, but a dog will be loyalty. And and they just need it. But th there is a gap. So what they do is they know that there is this void. Now, if we take girls, for example, they'll have a Romeo. So this guy will turn up and he'll be nice to the girl. And he'll tell her she's beautiful and, and everything else. And, and then she thinks, you know, maybe she's in her young teens and... She feels part of something. They strike up a relationship and then they start having sex. But it might, he starts then showing her porn films, getting her used to, and he's grooming her. And then he'll have sex with her. And then he'll get his friend to have sex and then they'll start making money and then they'll get the drugs. Once they get the drugs in, it's like... Um, they get her hooked on drugs. Yeah, they get her hooked on drugs. And then it, it's a chemical need as well. And then because they're not just the boyfriend, they're also the medicine man, you know? And the drugs are very, very important. And I, I sat in a meeting. I was meant to have a one-to-one -one meeting with Cressida Dick, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. And at the time, she was an assistant commissioner. And when I turned up, she was sat with nine other women around this big table. And I thought, ho-hum, you know. And uh, 
And I thought, I'm not being intimidated. This is, it was an overkill. And I turned around to her, I said, do you know something? What what upsets me is Cressida. And she said, no, 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 there's a protocol. Wouldn't mean to call her mom. And I said, well, no, when your senior officer's bullying me, that went out the window. I'm not calling your mom. I'm not, and I won't do it to anyone anyway now. I'll never call anyone sir or anything like that. I'm not doing it. Um, might call a cop a gov or something. I don't know. <laughs> but, and I turned around and I said, you know, what upsets me is that I can go into a children's home. I can groom a child. I can have sex with that child. I can get my friend to have sex with that child. And we can then both sell that child for other men to have sex. And we can then get that kid to get our friends involved. And we can do the same to them. And you have not employed one copper, not one copper, to deal with that. And it's prolific. It's a massive, huge problem. However, if I was to lean over my fence and call my neighbour, and I said a, a derogatory racist word, but only to prove a point, and that's not how I am anyway, I said, you would have me nicked, you'd have me asboed, and you'd probably have me evicted by the time the sun went down that night. How is that justified and balanced? And it just went silent. And do you know, the, the, the sad thing when I said that, I said this this word, right? Uh, give me the P. And someone went, and I said, there's a sharp intake of breath because I said that word, but I said it to prove a point. I said, I've just been talking about having sex with children and no one even blinked. Yeah, and, and this is the distorted mind of these people. And this is how it works. But all you do is you, you just fill a gap for them. I mean, how it worked with little Zoe was this girl, Foxy, would get hold of her and brush her hair for her and just sit there and brush her hair and take her to the pictures and start doing her makeup. And then she'd introduce... Then what she would do then, she would have sex with her boyfriend in front of her and then get them involved and that's how we do it and they start doing the drugs and say no we're all a group and it's normal it's natural and then and then start doing it you know and that's how they did it and of course you're in in, in on the conspiracy and and it's like most things people get in too deep sometimes it's a bit like police corruption you know you take a backhander one day not not have or anything like that but you take a backhander and well, they got you and there was quite uh, an interesting story was told to me uh, and it was about a copper that was selling information to a well-known um, South London gangster. And he was selling information and he was thought he was in with the boys. You know? What does that mean, selling information? Uh, getting information off the uh, criminal intelligence system. and Who's going to be raided, things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To. What's going on? Yeah, if, if you're going to be raided, who else is the new kids on the block and, and all this, this is where the stuff is. And, you know, basically compromising. And it's very dangerous, you know. It puts people at risk. It, it's shocking. Anyway, he did it for his ego and for whatever, and he was getting a bung. So every time he did it, he got £2,000. Every time he passed over a bit of criminal intelligence, he got two grand. Right? And that went on a couple of times. And then he, he got called into a meeting, this copper. right? And they said, right, we want information on this now. And he went, yeah, no problem. They went, here's your wages. And they slid over 50p. They went, there you go. That's, that's the wage from now on. And in the end, he had to hand himself in. He went to prison and he handed himself in because he knew how it was going to go. You know, uh, so it's... Did he have a rough ride in prison? Oh, they have to segregate him, don't they? I mean, there's one there's one copper I know that um, he didn't get segregated and he just got his teeth knocked out straight away. Straight away. Straight away, yeah. And funny enough, the um, the guy I do uh, the, the, the tree work with, he, he did 19 years in prison. Everyone, everyone I work with now has done serious time. It's quite ironic. And I said to him one day, he shot a policeman, this guy, 
he's a lovely fellow, Dave, but he come from a very rough background. Again, a very abusive, violent father, and he become, I think he was classed as Britain's most dangerous man at one point. You're allowed to say his name. Dave Brown, and he's a lovely guy. And why so, did he shoot a policeman? He was angry. <laughs> he didn't like the police. Um, so it was a general angriness at the police, not at that specific individual. Yeah, it had been years and years of in and out of every institution, um, and he was a tough guy as well. He was a good boxer. And he was a heavyweight boxer and, and he knew how to fight and he just had years and years of horrific, violent abuse from his father and ended up in a very violent system and he, he ended up doing a, a, most of it in Dartmoor prison. But he, he shot a policeman in Cornwall. Uh, I think Mevagissi it was, someone just shot him. And uh, and I was talking one day and I said, um, and, and he's a one of my best friends. He's a lovely, lovely guy and I, so I did a lot of work with him. And I said, what what would happen if I went to prison, you know, and I know we get on and all that, but he said, oh, they'd, they'd stab you straight away. And I went, but you know me, I'm a nice guy. And I'm a, he said, but once I got to know you, he said, but it's full of too many nutters. He said, you're, you're dead man. He said, you're dead man. He said, uh, however, saying that, I, um, you, when I, we used to do his stuff with um, the National Crime Squad involving organised crime with the Turkish gangs and things like that. And I used to do quite a few prison visits. And they've got quite a good intelligence system, you know, the prisons here. They've got what they call a PIN system and all the telephones are monitored. I know mobiles are prolific now, you know. I had a couple of them. These little mobiles are like plastic things about that big, you know. But back then it was all done on this PIN system so they, that they would monitor them. And we used to listen to the calls sometimes, you know. Over that Zoe case, we would sit in the prison listen to in Holloway. But I was talking to one guard and he was saying that he was um, in a prison over in Norfolk. And he said the worst ones for the drugs and the mobile phones were two um, ex-Liverpool coppers. And he said they were just horrific. He said they were just mad, you know, and they were general population as well. But he said they were just right off the scale. They just lost the plot. Is that because as well, the, the, the financial motivation, um, if you're a policeman or woman, you can like allow some dealers to deal and like bust some others and like well well, well how, it, how it works is the the mythology they don't like this coming out uh but there's been many a book written about it uh to do with informants and and let me tell you now it, it is prolific it is absolutely everyone grasses on everyone and you know and i'm not calling gangsters grasses or anything no, i'm not doing that but what i'm saying is when you get the big criminal communities are going, we don't talk to the old bill. Absolute total one out of tosh. It's nonsense. And for whatever reason, now there were legitimate reasons. It might have changed, but one of them was to get rid of competition. One of them was uh, general, you know, they want justice. There was other people, and it was generally heard that, a bit like Chris, they, they, they turned to gods and wanted a better society, and others wanted a reduction in sentences. And how it would work is that they'd have to give you information that would result in a prosecution. And only then would they get paid out. Uh, but they would also get reduction in a sentence. And what you'd do as an officer, you'd write a letter. It's called a text. And it would be handed by the CPS to the judge at the first day of trial. The judge would read it. And in, in the UK, we have a thing called PII, which is Public Interest Immunity. Uh, that Europe, it's banned. They don't like it. And what it is, is when they clear the courts, oh, there's a legal argument. Sometimes it's a matter of public interest and immunity. And what it might be is that one of the defendants is a grass. So they can have it with the defence team or without the defence team. You know, move them out. 
And then I say, look, this man, he's an informant. And any information relating to that, you can't say it. So they'll say to the defence barrister, you can't go there with this. And sometimes that's when judges go, oh, no, 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 not allowed to mention that. And it might be, it might not be, you know. But what, what used to happen was that you'd get two co-defendants, right? One's snitched and one hasn't. <laughs> and this resulted in deaths. I think the IRA, there was a lot of it. Uh, one guy would get 10 years, the other one would, would get, you know, an 18-month sentence, you know, and they're like, oh, hang on. So what they started doing was then they started doing on an appeal basis. You go to court and then you appeal. He'll get it and you won't. And so there's all different ways of doing it, you know, to protect them. But uh, it's um, it's it's just massive and it, it, it really was. But, you know, one of one of the legitimate ones was um, that, that you... Um, wanted to get rid of competition and back in the day when I joined um, you were you were actively told get out there and recruit them and I was good at recruiting them I was just very very good at recruiting them and um, and the vagrants were, were, were fantastic because they saw everything they were like foxes on the street and you could recruit your own informants uh, but now it has to go to a special professional system that does it you know and then you were responsible for the payouts and Sometimes they wouldn't be paid out. Sometimes the coppers would steal the money, and it was just and it was a, a nightmare. And some would get compromised. And um, there's there's one guy that um, it, it's really really bad because he did get compromised, and the National Crime Squad compromised him, and there was three attempts to have him killed, and uh, they tried to deport him as well because he was you know he's foreign national. And I actually went to his um, deportation hearing and gave evidence in his on his behalf to say they did compromise him and they were denying any knowledge of it. And they tried to sack me for that as well. And actually, they, they served me a, a bit of paper saying I'm not allowed to go to court. But um, they wouldn't, no one would put an author, put a name to it, and they wouldn't even put the Metropolitan Police, which was just on a scrap of paper. And it was perverting the course of justice, you know. Uh, but yeah, it is a big thing, and they'll never admit to it, and it's always going to be quiet and taboo and everything else. Earlier on, you mentioned the Turkish mafia had a hit on yeah. you. What's the story behind well, that? Well, what happened was I, I was on this uh, casino unit, and it was an incredible unit, and they never had a prosecution. Right, they've been going for years, right? but they never prosecuted anyone. <laughs> And uh, I, I had a, a detective inspector was a Sikh guy and he was the loveliest guy I've ever met. And he took me on. And the reason he took me on, I went from uh, Vice onto there, was I did a job for him one day because uh, I was a good exhibits officer, very thorough. And he and this guy was, he was an ex-boxer. He had no bone in his nose and he just walk along swearing. And he was an ex-covert undercover officer, real tough Sikh. And there's tough lot of the old Sikhs anyway. And... Uh, he'd brought up kids on his own and he'd found out that I was bringing up kids on my own and he went well who's looking after your kids while you're here and I went well my mum so he went well, what's her name so I told him he went I'm ringing her now so he rung my mum up said God bless you for doing that and he went over bought my mum a bottle of um, wine and told me to take her home and he went as of uh, Mrs Wedge as of um, Monday I'm having little Johnny Wedge working with me so he said come and work with me and I'll make sure you get home for your kids and he was a lovely guy he said but you work for me and if you have to take work home you you, you do it you don't go home and dust and I was very very loyal to him and the casinos were getting ripped over by a, a, a plethora of scams um, some obvious some not so obvious but all incredibly clever 
And um, can you name any of them? Yeah, 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 yeah. There was um, there was one called Top Hatting, and it was very clever. And what they'd do, uh, if I had a note on me, it's um, the the roulette wheel would spin. And see, in the UK, it's different because we're allowed to put bets on while the wheel's spinning, and that, that gets higher bets. So just as it's about to slow down and it bounces around a bit, they call no bets. So what they would do, these guys, they would um, they'd, they'd have some chips. Um, so they'd, they'd, um, they'd get the table chips. You've got the, the money chips. You've got table chips. So they'd, they'd nick them from other tables or certain casinos. They knew that these chips, um, they would use, there's slight variations. So there was about 15 different types. So they'd, they'd nick one of each well, or a collection of each and go around the country and working out what tables have got which one. And you can you can don- donate the uh, the value of a chip. So they would go into say a crappy old casino in say Northampton, uh, buy a load of chips for fifty p, play a couple and keep the rest. And then they go to an upmarket one, like in Mayfair. And the one thing is the British casinos pay out more than any other casino in the world. Not collectively, but on one payments, so you can get ten twenty million paid out in in one night and. Whereas Vegas, you won't get that, but but you, they'll get these chips. Go to an upmarket one, and then they'd, they'd pull it down as a thousand pound chip. But, and they did this scam. As the, ball, as the ball's dropping, they're like, "Oh, I want to put twenty pound on and all that." And the dealer would go, "No, no more bets." And they could see the balls dropped and went, "Okay." And they throw the money. The dealer would give them the money back, and on the way back, they would drop the chips on the winning square. They go like that, and then they'd sit, and then of course they they won. So they've got these chips they pay 50p for. And they're, they're wow. Off, you know, they could make 70 grand easy like that. So anyway, so, so they had them. They had um, others that were, and these were the Turkish boys. They were card markers. And they would they would get their fingers and they would crimp the card in little places. So under certain light, wherever they're playing, they can see the, so they start off playing small, crimp the whole packet, and then they knew the value of every card. And then they could bet. And, and these, these, these were good. <laughs> These were really good, and these were the the main ones. And they had another guy that had this algorithm programmed into his phone. He was a bit of a one trick pony because he made one and a half million in one night. Never heard from him again. You know, he did the Ritz Casino. You can Google it, the Ritz scam. And uh, I I managed the reason I solved that. I managed to get hold of the bloke who actually made the program, and and they were like Serbian gangsters. They were, but the main ones uh, they thought the unit thought there was all these different gangs, right? But when I started getting the photographs and the casino um, intelligence teams were all ex-military and they, uh, a lot of them come out this 14-int regiment, which were the bit like the SAS, but in Northern Ireland. And they were super sharp guys, you know. They are very, very good um, intelligence teams. And uh, I said to them, look, these, these are all the same people. These are all the same. These aren't like 15. This is one gang of about eight. And they're mainly Turks, you know. And then what I, I did was I found out that there was this bizarre rule that giving false information to game is an offence under uh, its class as a pecuniary violence, it's a deception. So they've had to sign in using a false name. So I, I, I sort of managed to find out who they were and I was nicking them for giving false information and I was getting handwriting experts to do things on that and that's how I got them. And... I was getting them banned from casinos and this information was getting shared all around the world. Well, of course, they were making a minimum of 80 grand a night. And with that money was going in to buy heroin and it was the big Kurdish um, gangs were 
and I really started getting into them. But then also I started then getting information coming in about heroin and I was seizing heroin. One, in one week on my own, I had a lad with me, um, seized 240 kilos of heroin and it was in two hits. Plus I destroyed them and so I became a big problem. And what happened one day was that um, I got pulled into the office by the boss and said, look, there's some information coming from the covert. They had a, a covert officer working within that environment and found a picture of me being dished out around the coffee shops around Green Lanes in Herringay and saying this man, they called me the blue-eyed Turk, right? Because I was dark-skinned and they're blue-eyed. He said, he's a snake and he's doing a lot of damage. His name's John Wedger, he's a copper. And then the information come in, it was £40,000 put up to have me shot. And funny thing is, it was given to one guy to do it and he actually, he actually came to the police and said, look, you need to protect John. And, uh, he liked me and he, he said, look, and he came forward and actually gave information up. But yeah, it was 40 grand. And the fella who put the information up to have me shot was found dead in Epping Forest four years ago with his head cut off. A bloke called Chetting was found dead with his head cut off and his hands tied behind his back in Epping Forest. So they were serious, serious, you know, people. And I was moved out of that. I was banned from Hackney and Haringey for, for quite a while. I couldn't go to Green Lanes. And yeah, the, 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 the Turks, they, well, they were Kurdish gangs. They were uh, very active, very, very dangerous, you know. And yeah, and, and not, not good at all. So, And I've had, I've been, I've had three de credible death threats. That was the only one that really did bother me because they, they were a class act. They, you know, they really did mean business and they would do it. So yeah, that was, uh, that was my little run with a, with a mafia, as it were, you know. But, did that not make you rethink your occupation? well I don't know I mean it's uh, now I look back on it it was quite funny I used to worry my, I never used to tell anyone really I never told my children anything you know uh, the, the, the one the only time that really that I, I really was like worried was when they threatened to take my children off me because I knew I was dealing with the British establishment and I think they, they piss all over the mafia any day that's the biggest you know? mafia yeah that is that's the most corrupt and perverse mafia on, you know and that's that really did and they they came very near to crushing me, but like someone said to me, it's a uh, it's what's the word he used? It's a war of attrition, and they've got the, the money, the people, and the willpower to see it through. You haven't, and they want they want you ultimately to commit suicide, go mad, commit suicide. What they needed was me still in the police. They didn't want uh, so they could then sack me and prosecute me. Um, in the end, I I think I won because I ended up getting out, getting my full pension and uh, and not getting prosecuted. So nine files went to the CPS. Every, everyone was dropped. Everyone was dropped. I even um, wrote a letter um, to the commissioner just saying, look, here's my, whatever you allege me are doing, I've done it, I admit to it. I don't care what it is, but I will go to Crown Court. The reason that I'm here is because Chief Superintendent so-and-so covered up child prostitution. And then I wrote down a list of all those that knew and she was on it, so was Hogan Howe, was all on this list. And that is my evidence. And I, and I also put, my back door's broken, the, and it just opens. So you've got an open invite. Do not get a warrant. I invite you in. You can search my house anytime. Don't break the door. Go around the back. It's open. Please don't break the door down. It's open. So I gave him an open invite to come in. <laughs> you know, uh, but they, um, in the end, they did back off from me. But I, I pity anyone who takes them on.
anyone who takes one. What is the purpose of the police? And in your experience, how effective are they in achieving that purpose? I, I think it's funny that I had this discussion with um, Chris Lambiano and Bobby Cummings. We sat down and uh, and I think Charlie Richardson's wife was there as well. And we were discussing the purpose of the police. And the funny thing is, uh, they all said, we need the police. And I thought, yeah, agree. And what they said, they had a problem with the regional crime squads and the flying squad because they were corrupt. They were bigger thieves than, you know, and they were violent. And, and, and that's where it goes wrong. So that are very honourable coppers. And if any of your member of family is getting their head kicked in, you want the police to turn up and steam in. You know, if your house is burgled, you want them to do it. Um, unfortunately, if someone is is raped and abused in this systemic fashion, you want a proper investigation and they are failing in that. They are monumentally failing. And they deliberately cut police numbers. I get these um, these jobs come through daily. Right, and they want retired coppers with investigative experience on child abuse. They, they, they're calling out. I, I did apply for one, but they, they've classed me as an activist, so I failed the vetting. They, they won't take me. I couldn't even clean the bogs in the police station. Now, I actually had a letter banning me from all police stations. <laughs> you know, so. Um, <laughs> but, but, and the funny thing is, right? What, what isn't known is that there are huge investigations going on in the Falkland Islands with the police there, with child abuse, not with the police, but I, there's a huge, it's not come out. The Ascension Islands, they've basically stripped their police force and they're rebuilding them. We don't hear about it. All these um, British overseas territories have got major problems with child sex abuse because it's an island. We saw it in Jersey. We've seen it in the Hebrides. You can't run when you're on an island. You're stuck there. They'll do what they want for you. Um, so coming back to your question, are they effective? I think they were. I think they were highly effective. However, along with that came corruption. I think the police need to be paid properly. They need to be housed. They need free medical. And, and the same with nurses and the same with the fire service. Who granted don't do a great deal during the day, but we need them and we need them well paid. And and the ambulance crews, out of all the emergency services, total utmost respect for them. What they deal with, my God, I mean... And they get treated like shit by their by their people. I mean, they really are phenomenal. But they need to be properly maintained, properly disciplined, and properly looked after, and not overworked. And given time out because a lot of the, you know, you take uh, especially where where I started off. Um, how how it works is coppers would spiral out. So we'll start off in an inner London post and spiral out. So. You, if you went in the West End and you lived in North London, you'd spiral out, you'd end up in Wembley, then you'd end up out in Stanmore or something like that. What happened with South East London is a lot of it is bad, you know, and a lot of the main rotten crime goes on in and around South East London. And you had certain areas. One of them was Woolworth, which was Elephant and Castle, and it was called Carter Street. And it had a reputation for every prisoner getting battered. And they shut it down because too many prisoners died in custody. And funny enough, they renamed it and called it Woolworth and... I think the first week it was open, someone died in custody there anyway. So the mentality didn't change. Now, the next place they spiralled out to was where I was working. So I remember when I first started, there was a guy there and his locker was next to mine. And he had 666 written on his locker. And he said, they call me the Antichrist. And he was one evil man. He went, and he's just come from Carter Street, done all his service from the 70s in this area. He said, I've had a fight, a proper fight every day for 19 years. I'm not stop stopping now. And I can remember going out with him 
and there was a bloke walking along with some fish and chips and he's this bloke's got a bit of cod and he's peeled off the skin and he's thrown it in the bin and he's eating his fish so sort on we've spun the car around and i think you can't nick him for chucking a bit of skin away he's gone in the bin picked the skin up and took it and ate it and and ate food out the bin and then the next thing we've gone round to some domestic and he's just given this bloke the biggest kicking in front of his family he's sticking him and that's how it went on and on and on he, he did that every day every day i mean now they wouldn't get away with it with all the cameras and all that but um yeah, there were there were there were some really violent areas, and every part of London had it. So that area had Carter Street. Uh, the East End had Stoke Newington. the The West End had Paddington. Harrow Road was um, notorious for for punchy coppers, and and they sort of strived their reputation on that, you know, and corruption. So it it, it was a stigma that stayed with them wherever they worked. I mean, and yeah, so. Uh, corruption i think they they did do a good job in wheedling it out i think they they took hard measures on it and uh but again uh they're going back to the old days there's no experience now the public are being let down because they've got rid of all the trade craft it is a trade and it is a skill you know and they some were really good at what they did they had a sixth sense they had a knowing and there was a need to be tough as well because there were coppers who were brave that wouldn't back down. We don't, we, we shouldn't see coppers backing down. We shouldn't. What, what message is that giving out? But they should be fighting the right people. Where you tend to see, I watched a copper program the other day and they were in Cambridge and there was some, I think, Lithuanian lads all drunk and they were mouthing off and there was this one young copper and he went straight in there, grabbed old, put one in the arm lock. And I thought, it's, it was old school being a man. It was proper coppering. He weren't brutalising, but he weren't hanging about and he weren't messing his words. He's like, you know, enough's enough. And we need to go back to that, but we need to also get back the old skills that have been lost, the old investigative skills that are lost. And there is a world of difference in Europe. Um, you take Switzerland, Austria... I think Germany as well, uniform and detective works are two totally different things. In in Austria, you, you join as a detective or you join as a uniform cop, you don't intermix. Here, we do, we, we, we branch over. Uh, uniform coppers are totally different to detective. Detective is a fascinating world. It's an incredibly interesting world. Um, and it's miles better than uniform policing. That's just absolutely appalling. I hated it. And... Uh, I feel sorry for anyone who does it. I just can't stand it. But there was guys that did 30 years of it. You know, same place every day. You know, I can, I'd be like working in a factory. But I think they are failing the public. And when it comes to the sexual abuse, historically it's been failed and, and covered up. And we're seeing the same coppers being used each time. And ex-coppers, their name is coming out each time. And they seem to be the ones that are doing the establishment bidding, you know. Mike Field was a very, very brave guy. Um, he's now being attacked by this ex-copper called Paul Settle. Um, and I don't know what his agenda is, but he seems to be brought out a lot whenever there's, you know, and there's a couple of coppers like that. They're always using the voice. And I, I'm not on board with them. I make no allegations against them, but I'm not on board with them. And I think some people do get bought and paid for. Did you find that racism is a problem in the police force? Didn't you know, funny enough, I had this chat with my mate. And uh, who was the, the covert copper, right? And I said, now, if you was to talk to a black copper or an Asian copper, you might get a totally different viewpoint on it. Um, and I said, 
and I said that, I said, did you ever see any real overt racism? He went, no. I said, well, I don't think I ever did. However, my mate, Jamaican lad called George, he, he joined in the 70s and said it was appalling. Absolutely appalling. But when I was there, no, not really. Um, and when I was in the West End, we had um, we had a team of about, I think about 20. We had, we had a black girl, three black lads. We had two lesbians and three gay guys all on this team. And there was banter and there was banter and there was. Um, but I remember once that um, I was getting a rough time on the street and I was, um, they, they, this, well, it, it turned into a mini riot. They turned the car over and we were, me and another lad were getting a right good hiding. And the first fella on scene was this gay guy. <laughs> and, uh, but the day before he'd been, he'd been the victim of a bit of jibing in the pub. But he was first on the scene and he took out nine people on his own. He was like Zorro. He came along. He said, <laughs> oh, he absolutely smashed in the beating. And uh, you know, the next day he was he was also camping it up in the pub. And I thought, well, oh, on the street, he was an absolute animal, you know. <laughs> he was incredible. But uh, but uh, no, but there were others that would say yes. And, and again, um, like my mate once, we both had to go and see a senior officer so something to be told off and I sort of got an easy deal and he got a hard deal and he said, look, it's because I'm black. He said, that's the only reason she's done that. She hates us. She hates the brothers, you know. Um, so I would say there were a lot of, when I first started in Southland, there were a lot of snide comments and there were and and, and it was quite funny because, um, well, it's not funny. It's just how things have changed but I remember uh, at a briefing, you'd start off your shift and the inspector would come down and everything back then was very official. And I was a new lad. I always had to make tea for everyone. So I had to make tea for everyone. And they'd have a briefing and they'd do the crimes crimes of note. And this inspector was there and he went, oh, he said, yes, and uh, usual suspects. And he said, uh, three biffs had um, mugged an old woman. So get out there and sort them out. And, and I sent my mate, what's he mean Biffs and he went oh it stands for black ignorant effer and, oh and, and this was the inspector said it <laughs> and that's what he said in the meeting I said really uh, I mean that was I mean and when he joined it was probably even worse but no when with, with my sort of um, intake and all that it was pretty mixed anyway and it, it was it was on its way out although it was, it, there were still people in there that were horrible. But I, I think you'd get that anywhere. You would get that anywhere. But institutionally, it probably was. And I got the back end of it. Me personally didn't, but I, you know, when I was in there, the back end of it, it was pretty raw. And the sense of humour was pretty raw. And that would involve racism and homophobia and everything else. But that did, um, it did sort of die out you know really but again it it never really impacted on what i was doing or or anything else really and and you know it, it's easy for us to all talk like we got halo but but i've never been that minded anyway i grew up in a mixed area I, you know i went to a mixed school and and it did I, i'm not like that so it never really you know um someone's a tosser they're a tosser you know they come in all shapes and forms don't they really you know um but unfortunately, I think that we're just not catching the real ones that are doing it. I only wish I could wave a magic wand and people would be exposed for what they truly are, which all their crimes would be listed in front of them. 
my God, as a society, we would have our, well, I wouldn't, but a lot of people, their jaws would be on the floor. And the the stuff I did know and, and the connections I did get involved with, like you said, with the yew tree and the celebrity stuff, um, I can't say them because I'd get in a world of trouble. But, you know, the footballers that people think are fantastic, there's one or two of them, they're not. Again, same as the actors and, and, and everything else. And you see them and you think, my God. But they just, the burden of proof is the highest in the Western world. And beyond all reason, without an incredible amount of work you need. Statistically, when we take um, a, a historical child abuse case, and people don't like that word historical, but it is what it is, like child prostitution, it is what it is. Historical child prostitution cases, they they have a success rate of 2%. 2%. What? But that isn't saying that 98% of those accused are innocent because they're not. No However, the likes of Daniel Janner, who's sitting in there proclaiming his dad's innocence, he goes, they're, 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 you know, they're harking on about that. Well, they've not been found guilty, therefore they are innocent. Well, they're innocent in the eyes of the law, but they're not innocent in the eyes of God because they know what they've done. And and as coppers, we knew what they'd done. You'd have access to intelligence and you knew what people had done, but you just couldn't say it, you know. And you, you get to deal with the suspects and the victims, whereas a solicitor will only deal with one or the other. So you do get a balanced, you know, thing. So. I just watched the Madeleine McCann thing on Netflix, which is heartbreaking. Any thoughts on the Madeleine McCann oh, case? Oh, so many thoughts. I mean, again, I, I did get a lot of good information. Um, because I knew someone that was involved in there. Uh, and what I got back is, you know, the parents were heavily involved. I mean, take you take that copper Amaral Concalves. I mean, he didn't just write one book. He wrote two books. I mean, the British have got no jurisdiction out there. What the hell were they doing out there? If a Portuguese is killed here, it's our job. They'll have a family liaison. We don't send search teams and all that. Why was the Pope involved? I mean, it's just disgusting. I mean, what, what I was told, what I was told, I mean, and I'm not going to disclose my source, was that they were swingers, the um, the family, you know, the, the whole group and all that. And um, uh, the, the child was um, given a lot of uh, sedative, you know, because they were doctors, they got sedative and, and it was a, a residual amount was too much and it killed them. But the, the very sad thing is that the, the well, sad that the little girl died, but uh, again, if if a body can't be found, then you can't do an autopsy, can you? And with a child, there's going to be what they call a special post-mortem, not just a normal one. If I had a heart attack and died, they'd just cut me out and say, look, John Major's heart's knackered, that's it. With a child, they're going to look at everything and they'll be looking at the downstairs region of a kid as well. Now, what if that came up with signs of interference, which it would, you know, if it had been done, it would be there. So, um, Was that the, the dog that was used... Now, that dog uh, couldn't be discredited. It was just a phenomenal machine that was just 100% bang on all the time. Uh, so they, they managed to discredit the dog as they've discredited everyone who speaks out against them. But then that dog was discredited professionally. And of course, that dog was used in Haute de la Garenne in Jersey, the kid's home where they found the scent of the, you know, the bones and everything else in that kid's home. That Lenny Harper, that brave guy, was running an operation. And then, of course, that collapsed as well. So look what they did, the backlash. And all them kids that were in that home that want justice and won't have it. They had an anthropologist just going on to Jersey a minute. 
an anthropologist and they had a pathologist and they had an archaeologist. All the ologists were there. He did a proper job. And they found human bone. And the human bone, the bone they found had collagen. Now, it's only humans, I think, and pigs have collagen. All right? And a cadaver dog is trained to either sniff out a pig or a human because they're, they're so intrinsically linked in smell. Because we could use every organ in a pig. We can't use a monkey or anything like that that we're meant to be related to, but a pig we can use. And how many religions won't eat pig? It seems very odd. that. Anyway, so collagen was on there and, and they got the, this expert on bones to turn around and said, that is a human bone and it's aged between four to ten years old, right? So good evidence, almost irrefutable evidence, arguable evidence, but very good professional evidence. That got bagged up, eunuch seal, ratchet sealed up, off it went to lab. It come back and the report that the ratchet seal had the same number but a different seal, and it was a coconut shell. So it was coconut shell. And then they said, well, the dog's been discredited anyway, so the dog obviously had made a mistake. And this is what they do. And again, with a McCann, I mean, my opinion, my opinion that, that, that they killed the girl and... Uh, I don't know. I can, uh, the best bit of um, investigative journalism on that front I've ever seen was that embedded confessions with the American, have you ever seen it? Peter Hyatt. H-Y-A-T-T, Peter Hyatt. You must watch it if you're interested in it. He's a statement analyst. And I was lucky enough that I, when I was on Vice, I uh, went to work with one, did a bit of work with a statement analyst and a profiler. And it's an incredible science. It really is fantastic. And it's just brilliant what how people react to things and, you know, what they do. Um, and anyway, he analyzes the written words. So he's transcribed all their interviews and he gives a rating of um, dishonesty detected and for both of them. And he, he's picked up that Kate was a victim of sexual abuse. Uh, and I sort of go along with it, you know, and he's also said that she's lied about the child. Uh, but he sees Kate as a bit of a victim but he says Jerry McCann is an incredible deceiver he's just an absolute incredible and on the point of narcissism as well um, so yeah embedded confessions fantastic really fantastic professional forensic uh, bit of evidence and all forensic means is evidence for a court that's what forensic means it just means a foray court but yeah brilliant so um, yeah why would they go to such an effort why would they go to such a... I mean, they're, they're, they're denigrating Mike Veal with Operation Conifer. I was looking into Ted Heath. I think it had 40 victims come forward, 40 victims come forward and all said very similar things about what he was doing and everything else. Um, and they moaned at that because it went over one and a half million. Yet no one's moaning about the 11.7 million that they've gone... Why? I mean, really... It's just appalling. It just stinks. It stinks to I ever. And I think, to be honest, the British public have had enough of that too. I don't think anyone believes them anyway. It's a bit like the Diana crash. I don't think anyone's behind it. I don't know why they don't just give up and go away because they're just annoying, aren't they? You know, so... Um, Another shocking part of that documentary about Madeleine McCann on Netflix was they brought an investigator in and he uncovered this uh, paedophile ring throughout Europe and they, they were oh, transferring right. photos of all of the kids. So... Because of that investigation, they found these photos and they were able to like contact the parents and say, look, here's your kid. This photo was in this paedophile ring. 
kid's probably dead. And I thought, Jesus. Yeah, I, I, did, I did an interview with a lovely woman called Corinne Hustbart. Hustbart. She's a um, Belgium lady, and she's on the FBI's uh, top 10 of profilers. And she was the official profiler for the Mark de True case in Belgium. And she is one mind and a half. I, I spent two days with her and I think we got about two hours kip in them days of just talking constantly. And um, she got hold of a list of uh, kids' photos and managed to identify one child and take it to the parent. Uh, but I mean, there, there has always been this transit of children from England to Holland and to Belgium. And that was happening a lot with the children in the care homes were taken out to Holland. And there's been a lot of testimonies um, from these inquiries where, where kids were taken out to Holland, taken to Belgium. Um, I mean, what the British public have got to do is wake up. They have to wake up. And I see that, say this in quite a few of my talks. Uh, a few years ago, there was that video footage of this woman walking along and she picks up this scraggy old cat and lobs it in a wheelie bin. I don't know if you see it. I don't know. Do you ever see it, chaps? You know, she picks this cat up and slings it in a bin. And there was mayhem. Oh, Britain was, that was ready to go to war. This woman had to be moved home and there was death threats. And I'm thinking, my God, if only you was so bothered about children as you are about a, an old mog, you know, that, I mean, there might be cat lovers out there don't like me saying this. I mean, I'm really not bothered. But what I want to say is this, Mark Dutroux, um, Dutroux, however you spell it, D-U-T-R-O-U-X, he was abducting kids, um, building these dungeons, and he weren't working alone. He was working with others, and they were using them for sex parties. Now, what happened was that uh, they did find uh, three girls were found. Uh, no, two girls were found, but there were seven kids involved, and others had died in other chambers. He had. Now, these kids were saying that they they were imprisoned they were abducted from the street imprisoned and were used for sex parties but the parties involved wealthy people and one of the kids uh recognized a member of the belgian royal family massive inquiry was taken 990 civilian witnesses died in the lead up to the trial and this was in 1994 i believe right so living memory country very similar to the uk in a lot of ways demographics and everything else right the kids were only allowed to talk about Dutroux raping them and not. And Corrine actually um, said that he wasn't a child killer. He didn't match the profile of a killer. He was a pervert and, and he was a psychopath, but he wasn't, you know. Um, anyway, they covered it up, monumentally covered it up. Everyone got nicked. The, the, the copper running it got nicked. The journalists got nicked. It was just a whole massive whitewash. There was coppers involved in covering it up. Uh, anyway, a fireman had something to do with one of the children that was related to it and he weren't happy with it so they took the fire engine along to the parliamentary building in Brussels and they opened the hoses and they smashed all the windows and then the farmers got involved and they sprayed cow shite all over it right and of course it brought the, to the attention of the police everything the next day in a country as small as Belgium right half a million people took to the streets and caused Brussels to come to a standstill wanting justice and then out of that they got the white flowers thing and yet we're worried about a cat getting lobbed in a bin you look what's happening in this country you can times it by 10 what's happening in belgium in this country and look what we're doing to our victims that are standing up look at what we're doing to our drug addicts that are victims as well 
Look at what we're doing to our young offenders that are victims as well. Look at what we're doing to our look at what we're doing to all our mental health people, right? To medicate them, there is no therapy, there is no reparation. People want justice, and with justice comes healing. And now we are even slamming the door on justice, and we are doing it deliberately. And this government is doing it deliberately. And MI5 are hugely complicit in it, hugely complicit in it. Special branch are hugely complicit in it. And these inquiries are just gatekeeping the information. And it's got to stop, you know, and we need to get together. The problem with victims and survivors, and I'm sorry, I'm going to say this, you fight amongst each other. You've got to stop doing that and you've got to attack. I've been attacked loads of times. Things they've said about me online. I'm only doing good and I've just been hounded and hammered by, by all sorts. We've got to stick together, get the message out, do the right thing and we can bring about a change. But otherwise, no change will come. They will keep ruining it. And how many more deaths will be through suicide and, and drug addiction? Too many. You mentioned drug addiction a few times there. Uh, what do you think about the criminalization of addiction and the war on drugs? Because I'm an associate member of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and they're policemen who say you know, they, they join to arrest murderers, rapists, pedophiles. But they were assigned to like infiltrate student groups and get them smoking weed and, yeah. and arrest them at the end of the month, and that's not what they signed well, up well, for. Well, funny you should say that because I, I was put on a unit uh, I was meant to be investigating road deaths, right? And I was told my first day there, no, you're being sent on this unit. And it was when a student protest started and we were put to investigate the students. And they were going out their way to criminalise them. They were hammering. But the, their solicitors were on board with it as well. Their solicitors, there was one judge and they were getting over-the-top sentences for really what they could have got a caution for, right? And they were just protesting about their future, you know? And there was one lad, I was over at um, Horse Street Road Magistrate and the, the judge was there and he was talking and he said to this lad, look, I've seen the evidence. And his solicitor saying, go not guilty, go to commit or go to Crown Court, go to Crown Court. And this kid was like, didn't know, di didn't understand, you know. And he was like, uh, and the judge said, I've seen the evidence, I'll deal with you fairly. I've seen your background, I've seen your antecedents, I will deal with you fairly, you will be walking out of here. And his barrister solicitor kicked off. That's unfair. This is prejudice and all this. So yeah. You know, anyway, started mouthing off. I had to go at the judge for it. And the judge went, "I'm sorry, son. I can only be guided. You know, I can only tell you what I'll do for you." And this 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 kid solicitor made him go not guilty, as is his right. But it was wrong, and took him to Crown Court. He got sent to Kingston Crown Court. So they they'll, they'll pick certain Crown Courts, right? Very white middle class area. Very. Male reading, you know, the Tory graph. No, we're not having none of this nonsense. And he got 18 months, this kid. 18 months. He weren't a criminal. He'd done nothing wrong. And again, this is what I said at the very beginning. What my friend said to me, they pick low-hanging fruit. They pick low-hanging fruit. And that's all they do, you know. And I, when when I, um, I seized um, all that heroin, uh, it was in two hits. And I... I ended up getting um, interviewed under caution. Instead of getting, well done, John, you know, and it did cause a fluctuation in the price of heroin, actually, what I did. Uh, there was 220 kilos at Southall, and then there was uh, a, a 10 kilos over Hackney, and then there was another five kilos in, in somewhere in Dover. And um, they they interviewed me under caution because they didn't know how I got this information, and there was a lot of jealousy, and I was I was put up as being corrupt and running unlawful informants well of course 
you know, I, it was all run properly and I'm not going to tell them anyway. So that, that's how they treated me. Yet the, there was another group that worked in the, the clubs area that dealt with the nightclubs. They, they, they raided, I think, the, the fridge at Brixton and they see something like 50 ecstasy pills um, and about three rocks of crack and a few joints. They all got um, TM medals with um, Ken Livingston uh, uh, or Boris over at City Hall, you know, and it was on the news as well. The major police bust and all that. Nothing about what I'd done, but all, and they showed it all. And it a couple of spliffs and it. And of course, those lads that were dealing that, they're going away for a long time. They're going to get big sentences, you know. And this is what they're doing. They're, they're, they're picking on these dealers that are dealing out their mouth, deal by mouth, you know, what five or six rocks. And, you know, they're going to get 12 years, eight, 12 years. And they were deliberately sending them to Kingston Crown Court, you know, whereas if they sent them to Snaresbrook or one of the, the Wood Green or someone, they'd have got a hell of a lot. They might have got, been acquitted by the jury up there. There's a Vice magazine video going viral right now on YouTube. It shows this undercover cop, baby-faced, goes into the school undercover, pays an autistic kid $20 to get some weed. Oh. And then... Well, that's how uh, John Provocateur, that at, is. At the end of the investigation, 20-something um, kids were arrested, more than half of them special needs, the rest of them minorities. And the news headline was, dangerous crack yeah, and heroin bit, gang yeah. dealing drugs in school. Yeah. And the, the, the documentary went on to explain that the more arrests they got, like the low-hanging fruit you're talking about... Yeah the more federal funding they got. And these are the easiest people yeah. to arrest. And of course, sort of with here, it'd be the middle England. They're all happy with it. You know, the mayoress is happy with it and all that. And it's, uh, it's just, it's absolute. And I'll, I'll tell you something with, with um, why I exposed at the time, the policing and crime minister was Sir Michael Penning, Sir Mike Penning. And it turned out he was my constituent MP. So I bent his ear and said, Mike, come on, you've got to help me. And he did. Fair play, he did. And he took it right to the top. And he, he summons Cressida Dick into Parliament to, and she refused to turn up. So that speaks volumes. <laughs> um, he then took it high up. He, he took it to Theresa May. What was going on with the cover-ups? <laughs> the next day, he was kicked out and they made him Minister for the Armed Forces. And he continued to um, help me. Uh, held a meeting with um, Nicholas Hurd, the new Minister for Policing, Douglas Hurd's son, and members of the Home Office. Uh, we had a meeting, and the, and the next day, I think he ended up as Minister for Pens and Toilet Roll, I think, in Parliament. <laughs> they kept busting him. And he said, John, every time I come and help you, they, he said, it's, it, what can we do? And there, there's another MP, bless him, called Andrew Bridgen. And he said, it's above their pay scale. They're never going to help you. They, 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 you. You can wait all day long. They are going to do nothing, John. And it's true. They are, This government will do nothing about. And Boris Johnson, I mean, this needs to be said when this goes out. And hopefully you'll get some good viewers. Uh, we collared Boris Johnson about four months ago outside Parliament. He was on a crappy old mountain bike. He dresses like a tramp. He does it on purpose. We collared him on in Parliament. Just he was going in and said, Boris, come on. This this is what we're doing. We're campaigning for decency here, for whistleblowing, for victim. He went, no, nothing to do with me. And he just went straight in. And then he classed the independent inquiries as money being spaffed up a wall, which is akin to being spunked up a wall, which isn't the right term to use to victims of abuse anyway. So if we think him as PM is going to do anything about this, my God, no, of course he isn't. And he's an old Etonian. He would have been, you know what they put them through in Eton. So is there any solution to this or is it always going to get covered up and it's always going to go on? No, there is a solution. And the solution is that we've got to stand together. Um, Victims, please don't be offended and don't be ashamed. You've done nothing wrong. Speak out. 
Do you have any victims that would be willing to come on this podcast yeah. and speak frankly about yes. exactly what happened yeah, to them? Yeah, yes, yes. And tomorrow, I mean, this this is obviously a pre-record, isn't it? Uh, but it's a shame because tomorrow, the seventh, there's we've got a protest. There'll be there'll be plenty there, and there will. And I'll put an appeal out. Look, uh, the John Wedger Foundation. You, you go on there, you'll find my email address. Get in touch with me, and and uh, um, we'll put you in touch with, with, with Sean. But um, yes, there are people. There are, and they will talk frankly, and they will talk freely as well, without any hindrance of prosecution or anything like that, because they're talking the truth, you know. And they are, unfortunately, people get angry, and they, and they class them as renting, and it's not it's righteous anger. They, you know, there's, there's a lovely guy, Bill Maloney, that I work with. He's lost every one of his siblings near enough. Every one of them has died due to uh, side effects of abuse in the care homes. You know, no wonder the guy's angry. Uh, you know, uh, and what happens if they shout or anything, then they just get discredited for that. So it's it's appalling, and this is what we've got to do. The victims need to come forward. The police need to be held accountable. And we, we basically need to bring this country to a standstill and make them do something. You mentioned Lambriano and Cummins. Quite a few people have put them forward as possible candidates to come on this podcast. Do yeah. you think they would be up for that? Brilliant, yeah. I mean... Bobby Cummings is a very intelligent guy, uh, and he's he's got an MBE. I think I think he's got an MBE. He he, he takes a fight into Parliament, um, and, and yeah, and he's got a bit of presence about him. Chris Lambiano must be one of the loveliest guys I've ever met in my life, and it's an absolute pleasure to have him as a friend. He is the the wisdom that oozes out of him. He never glamorises crime. He won't speak good of the craze or anything like that. He will just t- say it as it is, and he's just. Um, a fantastic man. He really, he, he, this, this will make it off the, um, I, I go and meet with, with, um, a lot of ex cons and all that, this, this, this group that they've got, and they're meeting the blind beggar and things like that. And I, I, I tend to get either a good reception or an indifferent reception, really. So I, I don't, never get any trouble or anything like that. And, uh, and, Usually there's a lot of people that would like to have a sit down and chat with me because a lot of them, when you talk to them, their life of crime started because they're in care homes, you know. But uh, one day we were off to a venue in the evening and they meet sometimes in a cafe in the East End called Peliches where all the gangsters used to meet and meet there, have a, something to eat, and then we were going to an evening out. I couldn't make the, the, the meal thing. So I went off to the venue, which was the O2 Arena, and... Tony, who runs a group, uh, he turned up with, I think, Charlie Richardson's wife. And I said, well, where's Maureen, Maureen Flanagan and um, uh, Chris Lambriano? Where's Where's Maureen and Chris? Where, you know, they said, oh, well, they're outside the cafe and uh, East End gangster tour bus went by. <laughs> and they've got all these people on this gangster tour, double-decker, going through the East End, and they've seen Chris and Maureen and thinking, my God, we got, you know, the two living relics of the Cray era. And uh, anyway, Chris turns up and I said, oh, I got collared. He said, oh, I've got to tell you about this, John. He said, they've collared me and Maureen, put us on the bus and taken us around all the haunts. And he said, they've given me the mic because Chris is a born again Christian. And they've given him the mic thinking he's going to start talking about stabbing, shootings, all that. And he said, my name is Chris. It's short for Christian. And he said, I got the Bible out and started reading some Psalms to him. But he's a really wise man, and I've seen firsthand what he does with uh, addicts and survivors, you know. And he sits down and he talks words of wisdom. He's a fatherly figure, and he and he talks the right language to them 
guides them away from trouble, puts them in the right road, and he understands their frame of mind. Um, so, yeah, fantastic bloke, you know, and uh, I, I, I no doubt I, if you want me to, I can yeah, uh, get, get in touch with Chris. Um, and uh, I would have thought he would do it, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I like I say, a lot of the people that I break bread with now have done serious time. And no problems whatsoever, you know, you know, none whatsoever. What's your opinion on the craze? I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. And there's things that I'd like to say, but it wouldn't be the right forum to do it. Okay. But I think that they were involved in some very nefarious things. And uh, no, nothing, nothing really good I've got to say about them. I think if people really knew what they're involved in, I don't think anyone would hero worship them. Okay. Um, but then... Um, that was the era and you know they and they got involved with the politicians and maybe that was their saving grace and their protection for a long time you know but yeah no i think it's uh and funny enough someone who wrote one of their books i had a meeting with her and i know a couple of things that they did and i said to her did you know about this and she went yeah i said well why is that not in the book she went well no one would buy it would they you know, and it's not nice, and it's not nice, but I will leave it at that, you know. But no, I'm not a fan at all, and I'm really not. So how can people who've watched this video help you? Um, we What we, we do, we, we have uh, the Campaign for Decency. Uh, there's a guy called Jeff Runs It, and it's the first Wednesday of every month outside Parliament, and we have a little protest. Um, I've been doing a letter-writing campaign to all MPs saying that, police whistleblowers and um, victims of abuse need to be um, protected. But, I mean, really research it because at the moment the media, the mainstream media are deliberately denigrating anyone coming forward. And what I say to you, that, that it's, it's a lie. Now, there are victims that have gone on to abuse and it's an unfortunate statistic. It does happen. And in no way is that a blanket comment that victims are abused because they're not. But there is a percentage that does uh there are victims that go on to commit dishonest crime but it doesn't mean when they come forward that they should be treated with disdain and disrespect that they are um i would say that you know get behind us and what we're doing i mean at the moment i'm pretty much worn out with it all i've spent um all my money doing this um i've been accused of stealing money being everything's come out of my own pocket the mainstream media haven't been behind me um they have with Maggie, they haven't with me, you know. Um, so I've struggled it, but everything I've done has been on the cold face, you know. Um, but, I, I mean, just watch this space. I don't know what my next move is, um, but there are a lot of victim groups. You've got the Shirley Oaks group, the Beach Home Survivors groups. There's all them that, you know, they all need help in one way or another. A lot of them need the publicity. What we're doing is there's... Um, uh, a media company called Brees Media, B-R-E-E-S Media, run by Anna Brees, a, a former journalist, a BBC ITN journalist, um, very well known back in the uh, back in the nineties, and she is now training the victim and survivor groups how to use their mobile phones as recording devices, and she's holding two day courses for free. And giving them the skills so they can go out and take their own testimony, and uh, and I have helped out, and I'm also giving them advice on on what to say and what not to say, liable and what's not liable. You know, just be careful with naming names unless it's out in the public domain or they're dead. You just be very careful unless you can prove it to have your opinion, but unless you can prove it to a, a court standard, be very careful what you put out there. 
Um, so there, there is that, you know, you look into that, look into using your, your phone, put, you can put your own, it's very, very easy to put your own, um, videos out there and your own testimonies. But, um, that's basically really it, to be honest, Sean. I mean, and you've got a YouTube video uh, channel with videos and testimonies on it. Yeah. So I'll put the link to your YouTube channel in the description box below this video. So please go over and check out John's videos and subscribe to his channel. What other social media uh, platforms can we follow you on? Well, Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, Brees Media tend to manage that. Um, YouTube, you know, I've not done much for a while. Um, funny enough, I, I was contacted by a former um, member of uh, MI6 about three months ago and sort of basically gave me words of advice on uh, not to get involved with politics and the fact that my viewing figures will drop. I went from a million hits a month on Facebook down to 80,000 almost overnight and basically told me just to ease up a little bit. And that was words of advice from former ex-MI6, which I, I took gracefully. I was I was quite appreciative of that, that someone would come to me and say that. Um, so I haven't done a great deal, but again, they're still there, you know, and, and ping them out moving forward, uh, get them out. I know that they've um, gone off to America. There's, there's been quite a good response out in America. And, and just research it. Research the Mark de True. That's a very interesting case because that's in very recent history and uh, and it showed what the people, what their reaction was. And really wake up, wake up Great Britain, please wake up, wake up because, you know, this has happened to children and single parenting, I'm not to denigrate, I was a single parent for over 20 years. It's a tough life and it's not to be recommended. The children suffer as well as the parent suffers and it makes you weak. And it makes your family stability very weak. Now, if something happens to you as a single parent, where do your kids go? They go into care. And when they go into care, unless there's someone looking over them all the time, these predators are going to be there. And wake up to the reality of this abuse. Wake up to it. Look after your children. Do not abandon your children. Know what they're doing at all times. Be aware of it, who's around them. And uh, and just, just be good to them. Just be good to them and have a good open relationship with your children. And for God's sake, don't hurt them. Don't hurt your children. We've got enough pain in this world. There's too much tears in this world as it is. It's got to stop, Sean. It really has to stop. We we got to bring the love back in, you know, and start listening and um and have an open mind with mental health as well. It's I mean, look what happened two days ago when that lad, seventeen year old mental health patient, threw that boy over the parapet of the um Tate Modern. I mean, my God, what was going through that kid's head? And no doubt he's an incredibly damaged individual, you know, and, and the the ripples of this go on forever and ever and ever, and it affects everyone and it might not affect you, but you don't know what will happen down the lines and you don't know what happened to your children. Your children might end up living in an area where, you know, these people that have been are, are and it comes to you, you know, but make it your problem. Make it your problem. Don't walk away. They're all our children. This is one thing I say. My four boys I brought up, two of them weren't mine. They were going to a care home. And luckily I had a guy who looked after me like a stepdad, you know, and I said, what do I do? He said, you're not my son, but I loved you and looked after you. You do the same. They're all our children. Do not turn your back on them. The beggar outside a shop, by like the remaining ones, not knocking remaining ones, but, you know, the, the gypsy organised gangs, but the beggars, talk to them. You're fine. They've had a tragic life. A terrible life, you know. Uh, don't turn your nose up out of them. 
you know, have a bit of understanding and a bit of compassion for your brother and your sister, you know. So uh, what more can you do but share the love, you know? Well, listen, John, I'm sort of fascinated. It's made me uneasy and queasy at times, but I think this is one of the most important missions I've ever heard and I've ever been able to convey on my platform and you're a brave man indeed so ah. I wish all, all the best in your, in your God bless you mate yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you and yeah. I've watched your stuff with interest and he's look give me a book hard time so I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna read that i read that with pleasure thank you have you signed it all signed oh yeah yeah oh look at that <laughs> God bless you thank you so Cheers. much Sean. thank you man <laughs>